This is Adam Lippy, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is from my May 19th appearance on Morning Feed with Ed Feldman on GTownRadio.com. Uh, this is a lengthy appearance, uh, and we go from topic to topic to topic, mostly me promoting the screening for that particular night, which was Bullet in the Head for a medium-rare cinema, but it jumps jumps quite a bit, and it will really help if you're film literate. So without further ado, please enjoy. Hola, me llamo Joana y ustedes están escuchando la música mejor de Radio Germantown vivo aquí en gtownradio.com. Morning feed. And that was Louis Prima and Keely Smith from the Crescent City, although not from the Crescent City when they made that recording. And this is Morning Feed on G-Town Radio at gtownradio.com. We are the sound from Germantown Radio to the world. And on this lovely Thursday, and on this day when the rapture is, well, just two days away, I have my penultimate or my antepenultimate, no, my penultimate. Tomorrow's my ultimate guest. This is my uh, my penultimate program on Thursday. We have Adam Lippi, Maven du Cinema, the purveyor of fine uh, of film commentary of the famous, not so famous, and the completely and totally obscure at his website, a regrettable moment of sincerity.com. He also runs the Thursday night uh, a movie a series at a video library, which is called Medium Rare Cinema. Is it not, Adam? That's correct, yes. And he is our guest in studio today. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. So, Adam, how long have you been uh, the uh, master of a regrettable moment of sincerity? Tell us about the gestation of your, of your website. Well, that started in January of '09. I was writing for a uh, gay paper in Columbus, Ohio called mm-hmm. Outlook. Well, Columbus, Ohio is very gay town. Yes, Extremely it is. gay. Yeah, okay. Yes, uh, I started writing there in March of 2008, and I started writing out uh, pieces called Straight Up, which were uh, gay issues from a straight perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started writing movie reviews because I had written movie reviews in uh, high school and taken courses in college as well. And they allowed, because they like Straight Up, they allowed me to write movie reviews. And then when I got tired of writing movie reviews, I mean, uh, straight-up articles. I just wrote movie reviews exclusively. And when my girlfriend and I moved to Philadelphia, I wanted a way to get on Rotten Tomatoes, and since I wasn't writing for a paper... I like Rotten Tomatoes. Tell everybody who doesn't know Rotten Tomatoes what it is. It's an aggregator for uh, film critics where each review is linked to, and it says it distinguishes between positive and negative reviews Mm -hmm. via Rotten or Fresh Tomatoes, and anything over 60% is a considered a fresh movie via critics, although it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right, uh, of course. Uh, we'll talk about the scam that is uh, positive reviews for awful mo- uh, movies later. Well, it's not just a scam. It's the notion that people are only concerned whether it's rated positive or negative, not what it actually says in the review. I mean, it could be full of backhanded compliments, and it would still be... Right, but what I, I'm talking about, and it has long been a theory of mine, and... Uh, yeah, it's no theory. Uh, I, I got I got evidence that um, the easiest way 
for an obscure movie reviewer, uh, a movie reviewer or an, on an obscure website or in a small-town paper to get a larger national profile is to, have, is to write absolutely glowing reviews about a movie that no one else is writing anything positive about. They, their reviews then get excerpted and put on the ads for that awful review. I mean, the best hit is, of course, a great review for a shitty movie by a big studio that has a big ad budget. So, you know... Homer Schmidlap writes, oh, nonstop thrill ride about the shittiest damn movie that ever came out of a major studio. His review excerpt is put up on the ad and everybody starts to say, hey, Homer from the, uh, uh, you know, from the shit kicker times in Arkansas, he must be a, a real reviewer. And, and they do that over and over and over, just giving the best reviews for crappy movies that nobody else has anything good to say. And after a while, people start to notice their names. It's a real good way to get a national profile. It's an easy way to get a national profile. Most of the reviews that run in commercials that, that are well before the movie opens mm-hmm. are not actually quoted from reviews. They're quoted from descriptions. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things are sort of profiles and descriptions of the whatever movie season. And the studio will take a quote from someone who hasn't seen the movie but has described it as a great thrill ride. It has non-stop really, thrill ride. R- non-stop thrill ride. It really <laughs> has nothing to do with whether they've seen it or not. Those quotes are taken out are taken early enough, well before the person has seen the movie, and since the ads are designed several days in advance, mm-hmm. there's no way for someone to have taken the review and found a flattering piece that they could use as a quote. So most of the very early stuff, when you see a magazine you've never heard of mm-hmm. or a person you've never heard of, it's because they didn't actually write a review. Or if you see a magazine or a television station or something like that, you may have heard of, but there's another reviewer who writes normally for that, and they're not quoted. Someone else is quoted. Okay. That's probably some random quote that they were willing to give. You know, The station manager was willing to say, well, I loved whatever it was. And, of course, when these things come up on the, uh, on the TV ad, they happen so quickly that you can't see the byline, which is from you know, no, the Nome, Alaska um, carrier pigeon. Well, in the critic community, <laughs> we all know who the sellouts are. And when you see the ads, you just look at the bottom. You don't even have to pause it on right. your DVR. You know exactly who said what. We'll talk about Patrick Stoner later. Um, I know him. I used to pee next to him. Uh, uh, by the way, as a film his, a historian, um, do can you trace? I mean, this is probably uh, a little less difficult than tracing the Big Bang. Uh, can do you know who the first reviewer was to use the phrase "nonstop thrill ride"? See, I think it was me, but not in that sense because I used to have it uh, printed on my boxer shorts. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Andrew Saris from the Village Voice. You think? Um, when he had credibility at one point, didn't sh- he? Sure, but I'm thinking that when he was battling with Pauline Kael, he was saying that the argument was a nonstop thrill ride, and then someone took that out of context and, mm-hmm. and, and put it on a review of, I don't know, The Big Bus or some 70s film. Big Bus, not bad. No, I know. Not bad. Um, um, Joe Bologna, yeah? Yes. Love him. Sort of an early airplane style yeah, comedy. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, of course, on a bus. Right. <laughs> so, um, Pauline Kael, um, Lot of Lenya, two different people, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just make sure. <laughs> Lot of Lenya, not as chunky. Although, Pauline Kael, it has been purported, uh, took her personality as a combination of Rosa Klebb and Ayn Rand. <laughs> well, she was very frail. I don't know about, you know, 
<laughs> chunky comparatively. Chunky in later years, Pauline Kale put packed on a few pounds. Did she not? I, I seem to know. No, because she, she was always little. She was always tiny. Like she's tiny, but I thought she almost was kind of midget level. Kind of sandbaggy. She, oh, anyway, but a lot. Uh, but she, you know, she couldn't. You did couldn't. You, did re- you pee next to her too? No, not at all. Because <laughs> she had. She always went in the booth because oh, okay. she needed a step stool. Um, Although on uh, in her uh, pictures of Pauline Kale, you could never really tell how tall or small she was because when she was photographed with other people, they were always kneeling at her feet. So you couldn't really tell. Whoa! Uh, Adam Lippy of uh, <laughs> A Regrettable Moment of Sincerity. That was a punchline, folks. What are Who are your kind of touchstones, your movie reviewers um that you look up to i mean you can't look up to pauline well Kale. i was gonna say i look down there to pauline you Kale, go. but i have read <laughs> and she's very been very influential not just to the paulettes i guess i would be a paulette because mm-hmm. uh i write not really worrying about whether people think it, my review is good or bad because that's irrelevant to me so i don't uh give grades or stars or whatever although when you post on rotten tomatoes you're forced to pick whether it's positive or negative which mm-hmm. i hate but uh, you don't have a choice in the matter, and it obviously does bring in a lot of hits from people who wouldn't necessarily read you because they wouldn't have heard of you. Ebert is obviously influential, although... Met him. Nice Met, guy? Yeah, very nice. We walked the red carpet together, honestly, at a Cable Ace Award at the Wiltern Theater in fabulous Hollywood. Ebert, however, gets predictable. So, you, you know, since he's been on his way out, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively, he has changed his position on certain things. He's become more metaphysical because he's thinking about his own mortality. Right, he's turning into Colonel Amberson. Right, and and his prejudices (laughs) are are kicking in further, so he's more reactionary. You can sometimes predict the way a review will be written, like he doesn't even see see the movie sometimes. And I may agree with what he's saying, but you don't even need to have seen the movie, or he doesn't have to have seen the movie for you to think what he's going to write, and it's usually going to be accurate. He touched me. He squeezed my arm, because I said... Hi, Roger. You know, I fix furniture. I used to have this TV show where I fix furniture. That why, that's why I was there. He said, really? I break it. Uh, and I said, Roger, look, I got you, right? Valley, beyond the Valley of the Dolls. When the 45 went into, uh, what's her name? Erica Gavin's mouth. And uh, they pressed the trigger and the, and the blood spurted out. That was your comment of, in a Hollywood movie, you can have blood spurting out of a woman's mouth and a gun in it, but you can't have a penis in there, right? Right? He squeezed my arm. He said, you're right. You're right. I think he would have said you're right no matter what you said. No, no. He, I think he was... Uh, Considering it's an X-rated movie. Our eyes met. Our so, eyes met. So it doesn't really matter what they put okay, in Okay. All right. And behind us, right down, uh, was Suki from uh, True Blood. What, what's her name? Uh, Anna Paquin. Yeah, Anna Paquin, except she was 12 at the time. Who knew? She's in a movie that actually was influential in me almost not getting on Rotten Tomatoes. I like her. That has been sitting on the shelf for five years. Really? Yes. It's a movie called Margaret by Kenneth Lonergan. I saw it at a test screening before I was a critic or a known critic or, you know, something. Someone could go to a test screen. You can't be a critic or in the entertainment industry. And I went to a screening about five years ago, and it's a terrific movie. It's very challenging. Uh, And and this version we saw was three hours long, so they were obviously going to cut it down to, you know, the 40 minutes. The problem... Uh, another 40 minutes. The problem was that two of the producers on the film during the long editing process died. One was Sidney Pollack, the other was Anthony oh. Minghella. 
And though Kenneth Lonergan's been working on it the whole time, Fox Searchlight doesn't want to fire him because so they'll get a bad reputation in the industry for mm-hmm. firing someone, even though they've been in court this whole time. But the Alan movie, Smithy is unavailable. Well, it's a great movie. He wouldn't want to put Alan Smithy on there. It is a great... So the reason it's not been released is... Because he's still been editing because he's a perfectionist. Oh, he's still... If I told you who's in the movie, you'd be like, that movie's not out yet. Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon, Matthew Broderick, Kieran Culkin, Allison Janney, Elaine May's daughter. What's her name? She's in it, too. She's really good in it. Jean Reno is in it. Uh, Josh Hamilton. Uh, But it's a very challenging movie. So they won't won't crack a whip? And they they, they don't have producers to call because they're dead. Right. Well, no, the producers would help push it through. He ran out of money yeah. a while ago and had to borrow money from Matthew Broderick, who we worked with on You Can Count On Me Okay. Uh, about 10 years ago. And, and he borrowed it from the wife. <laughs> I guess theoretically. <laughs> Apparently uh, she hasn't spent it all on makeup. Cheap but jokes, to, yeah. With a trowel <laughs> is the answer. We're not even going to give the question. Okay. Okay. So uh, it... There's no start. There's no release date. Well, it's what's been, the buzz, Adam? What's it's the been, buzz on this? It's been pushed back so many times because they keep saying, "Oh, it's going to come out. It's going to come out." And I wrote a review for Outlook a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it's the only. If you go to IMDb, it's the only review you'll find for the movie because I'm the only person to have seen something who now writes reviews. I guess they didn't like Fox. Didn't who owned Rotten Tomatoes at the time? Didn't like the fact that um, I put the Fox Searchlight phone number in the review in a major newspaper. And told people to call it to get them to release the movie. So what's the meeting like? I, I, I've been pitching this uh, uh, program to every network for years. And it's called What Happened in the Meeting. Because I'm always seeing projects, TV shows, um, um, movies that are awful. But I know the meeting about it was interesting. <laughs> so I say, what happened in the meeting? Because that's better entertainment. So... Did, I'm just going to guess what happened in these continuing meetings. They're saying, look, as long as, as Anna Paquin... Uh, She's the lead. Okay. Yeah. As long as True Blood is running, uh, as long as it's a hit, whenever we release it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to carry heat from that. So that doesn't matter. And it, there's no danger of it not being renewed till the uh, till uh, she quits. They shot it three or four years before True Blood even came out. Right. So that's always going to carry heat. Um, the rest of the people are either already grown, like Matthew Broderick, and he continues to be a star or, or a semi-star. And the rest of the people, like Kieran Culkin, um, will be great because even though Kieran Culkin is now post-puberty, he'll get his the demographic that is his age who will say, oh, let's go see him when he was only, how old was he? In oh, he was probably 16 or 17. See? So that's kind of an evergreen, too. So they're not going to lose any heat by sitting on this. And I'm sure that's probably what happens in these continuing meetings. So they say, let's not sit on this guy. Let's not put a gun to his head. Well, you can't get a quote from anyone because they're in court with lawyers and trying to sue him into releasing the movie. And Oh, so they do want him to release the oh, movie. Oh, they absolutely See, want to I say them. hang back because you're not going to lose anything. No, the Unless movie you're is going to be very dated when it comes out because it was very really? of 2005, 2006, dealing with uh, 9-11. Pre-Facebook? Uh, <laughs> Around Facebook, okay. Uh, though Facebook's not really an issue, but uh, it deals with racial issues. It deals with uh, oh, we're in a post-racial society. I forgot, right? Uh, <laughs> but it deals with the race issues. It deals with nine eleven, and it's it was it was a very smart, challenging movie that will now seem kind of quaint and dated uh, mm. if it comes out at any point. Yeah, but I think for the twenty somethings, 
Uh, nostalgia, which is a kind of a, a, a quarterly issue now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, look, uh, the, the kid movie, the Zuckerberg movie. I mean, that's all dated, and everybody went to see that. Well, that's oh, let's, let's go back to the beginning of time four years ago. That wasn't so much because of, it was about Facebook. It's a very well-made movie and very funny. Well, I'm assuming this one is, too. I yes. mean, it's got to be that, too. But as far as the issues, nostalgia being, you know, kind of a, a, a no more than a, a single presidential term concept in this. Remember back then when a white man was president? You know, that kind of a thing. Well, actually, the fact that, that, that Bush was president w- lent some gravitas to mm-hmm. Margaret when it was when we saw it in 2006. Part of the reason, I mean, it's the kind of movie that now would go direct to video mm-hmm. simply because I don't even know how you'd market it. Cause They'll figure it out. N- no, I think it'll probably get a, a contractual release in the theater, like play one theater in New York, but a theater that is in the middle of nowhere in Brooklyn, uh, run its one week and then it'll go direct to video, just like that last uh, Bill Murray, um, Megan Fox movie, Passion Play did. I didn't. That's not the one with him and Duvall. That's a different movie that's a different that, one, that yes. I didn't see. No, this is a movie that's been on the shelf for a while, and they finally got a, the contractual release. I guess it was last week, last Friday, and it'll be on DVD in two weeks. Is that one of those Bill Murray movies when he say, when he, where he speaks audibly or where he just really doesn't speak? Well, I'll be honest and say that I haven't seen it because they weren't okay. about to screen it for us. Mm-hmm. It's because it's not coming out here. They're not going to screen it for us. It, it, it played in L.A. Uh, it may have gotten one theater in New York, but it was really like they don't advertise it. It made $30, sometimes mm-hmm. literally, mm. and then got it out of there. But if you want to see it, it'll be on DVD in two weeks, as I said. You know, if I, if I told people the concept of Bill Murray's change in acting techniques from talking like this to talking like this, you'd think, well, that's easy and lazy. But you know it worked for him. It really did. Well, it's a so, drama, so I'm going to assume that it was very low. He, yeah, he's the 60-year-old mumblecore master. <laughs> By the way, we're, we're getting along now, Adam and I, but I, I was a little trepidatious about this morning's, um, this morning's interview because we do seem to be, I know, I know I'm young at heart, but Perhaps I felt our age difference and the movies in which we grew up with and stuff would would perhaps uh, be too wide a goal for us to have a Venn diagram that would entertain you. But I think we're doing it fine. Just, I don't know about the audience, but we'll we can, oh they're loving we us. We can figure out what we're talking about. Oh, uh, Buffo and Buffalo. Okay. By the way, when you said uh, Paulettes regarding Pauline Kale. Frankly, I forgot that people were called that, even though, of course, I grew up with Pauline Kael. But when you say Paulette, I just think of Paulette Goddard. But, you know, when people say Gene Simmons, I don't think of that Jewish schmuck from Queens. Well, there's that famous picture that just this woman uh, giving the (laughs) kiss tongue to the uh, hands in in in, um, Grauman's Chinese Theater. Okay. Of Gene Simmons. Of the real Gene Simmons. Not of the Chaim White Gene Simmons. But she thought it was that. She thought... So she's sticking out her tongue and going like this and trying to imitate Kiss, but it's actually the wrong Gene Simmons. Oh, we're talking about the Gene Simmons who, of of course, played um, the youthful lead in David Lean's Great Expectations. And they should have waited for her to grow up before they did the grown-up story, but in, but they didn't wait for her to do it. They put in Paula, uh, uh, Flora Robeson, and she sucked. What can I tell you? Well, in a huge leap, uh, the director of Passion Play is the one who wrote the Ethan Hawke 
version of Great Expectations that came out in 98 with Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert De Niro. And it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in the theater. So it, it holds that distinction that I'll always remember it. Well, I'm not watching any Dickens that David Lean doesn't do. I just don't do that. I just don't do that. David Lean makes Dickens movies, and that's it. Hidebound, old guy, perhaps. But I got a radio show, so thank you. Not you, Adam, them. I mean the people who not like me but who object to me the theoretical fictional people the theoretical enemies of me this is morning feed at g-town radio gtownradio.com we are the sound from germantown we're taking calls at 215-609-4301 adam if you were running the show would you play music now or would you continue to talk to me uh, i would talk for hours but here we go we're not going to play any more music oh okay Did we get one note in there at least is that what i heard uh too late. There we go. One note. That's it. That like was our conversation. Ben- One note. That was Benny Moray, uh, uh, Habana Ante Cera Evolucion. Um, that's what they were playing behind uh, the, day, uh, the kiss between um, Fredo and Michael. <laughs> you broke my heart. And so, Adam, um, you do seem to go your your the movies that you play. Hey, wait a minute! This would be a good time for a plug tonight, Thursday night, May nineteenth, at the Video Library, which is in the heart of beautiful Mount Airy. At what address on Germantown Avenue? Seventy one forty one Germantown Avenue. It's the heart of Mount Airy. There's a pizza place next door, McMenamins with with great fish and chips, but they're not a tax deductible on the writer of Morning Feed, so I'm not going to talk about them anymore. Food for all, too. Right across the street, everything's happening right there in Mount Airy, and every Thursday night, what happens in Video Library? Well, it, it used to be known as the Little Theater to a lot of people, and mm-hmm. they've forgotten that they do show movies, so they did stop for a year. But basically, it's called Medium Rare Cinema because we show films that are not necessarily rare, but unavailable on DVD in the U.S., uh, they could be in English. They could, you know, last week we showed The Challenge, mm-hmm. uh, Samurai film uh, with Tashira Mifune and Scott Glenn. And tonight we're showing John Woo's Bullet in the Head, which he made after The Killer, before Hard Boiled, and before he came to the U.S. to make Face Off and Broken Arrow and mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 2 and Paycheck, which was unfortunately named. Wasn't Mission Impossible 2 actually going to be called Paycheck? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you uh, talk, let's talk about um, what uh, kind of format you show this on. Is it a, a big screen? How we big should, it's, do you it, get it? It's a twenty-five seat theater, mm-hmm. and it's like real theatrical seats, soundproof, so you can't hear anybody who happens to be in the video store at the time. Nobody's in a video store anymore. True, but there sometimes are between seven and ten on a, on a Thursday. Not many, and uh, you know, get big surround sound. It's on a hundred and ten inch screen. Great. And I rewired the whole thing so it looks much better than it would have. Um, Can you do something about this spaghetti underneath this board? uh, No, you're screwed. Okay. And uh, so the purpose was to bring conversation to uh, Philadelphia, a film conversation, because I found that even at the Q&As they do at the Philadelphia Film Society, it's very passive. Uh, There's question and answer with whomever they're interviewing, and then there's a QA and a with the crowd who's then very tentative about what they're doing. And I want people to talk and think and discuss things during the movie no not during the movie okay, we do good good we, we open with an intro i'll do an intro about the short film that we're going to show that we're not showing a short film tonight because the movie's very long which we normally show a short film that's thematically relevant to the feature and then uh after the short film 
Uh, we'll have a discussion about the short, and I'll do an intro for the feature. And there'll also be uh, the trivia games prizes. I give away screeners. Um, you don't even have to get the question right. You just have to get the question sort of right. That's how much I want to give away screeners. Uh, there's, well, uh, uh, what's a screener? screener? Uh, uh, like a, a, a DVD that I might get sent to review that I probably won't review. Okay. All right. Sometimes there are things I have reviewed already, mm-hmm. so they don't serve any purpose. I'm not going to watch them again. It's very difficult to justify watching something a second time when you have thousands of things you either want to or should watch. I do the intro. There's the prizes. There's free popcorn. You can bring food in, whatever you want. I don't really care. Then we start the feature, and then after the feature's over, we then have a conversation with, you know, I'll lead and then try to open it up to the crowd for them to give feedback. So they feel free to say what they want about the film because, there's, you know, these films are not alienating at all. They're all – they'd all be mainstream movies if they were made by studios because the material itself mm-hmm. is mainstream, but you just can't find it for whatever reason. The, you know, I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. We showed like about a month ago, and that's a great movie by the director of Old Boy. And I tried to convince. I'm a cyborg, of, but that's okay. Yes, I saw that. It's a good movie. Very nice. It is very good. Yeah. And uh, I tried to convince uh, several small-time distributors to put it out maybe three or four years ago, mm-hmm. and they all told me they liked the movie, but there was no market for it. So what? I know. You kids today, you love this sort of thing. Well, yes, everybody I know who's seen it, and everybody who went to their screening loved it too. But so, and you've screened this at the uh, yes, at the we video screened library. at the video library okay. maybe like about five six weeks ago. Um, Quanto, Adam, how much to get in? It's seven dollars. Although, and you obviously get your money's worth if you mm-hmm. get a short, a feature, um, and the, the feature is always going to be um, in the best uh, possible format. I will find the best subtitles for something. If I can't, I will rewrite the subtitles myself. Um, I will, you know, get the best composite prints possible. Like tonight, I found a, a, a print that's in that has never been shown anywhere from this movie that has been around for 20 years. And so this would be obsessive cinema. <laughs> well, from my end, I, I'm really obsessed with, with giving people their money's worth and, and, and them enjoying it and wanting to make it exp- an experience. And, you know, on the way in when people pay, they get a, an essay that I've written about the film. That's an overview that they can either read before the film or after the film because it would work either as, a, you know, helping with the discussion initially or they'll read it after and it would, it would uh, work as that. There's a few – like the last few uh, reviews on my site are just atten- in essentially overviews of whatever genre that we're discussing that deals with the film that we're also discussing. Mm-hmm. Snacks? Uh, well, free popcorn. Free popcorn? Wait a minute. Is this microwave popcorn? No, it's it... not. It's it's made in a machine. Like... With what kind of oil? Uh, Palm? Uh, no. Um, it might be olive. I can't remember. I'm not the one who makes it. Bill okay. makes it. It's... Oh, well, then it's good, it's healthy, pretty... hippie popcorn. It is really Butter available? Uh, yes, but you don't even <sighs> need it because... Because it's so damn yeah, good. Yeah, and I'm someone who, who loves popcorn. butter on the popcorn. It's really, really quite Free good. Free popcorn? Yes. And maybe candy for purchase? They sell ice cream in the store. You can, so I can eat ice cream while I watch a movie. Yes. What kind of crowds are you getting? You must be have to turn turn people away with this kind of thing. You'd think, but no? uh, to get people to show up to something they never heard of is very difficult. Um, credential press gets in for free, right? <laughs> yes. Have to get some press. press I, there's a credential press coming tonight who wants to, to to write about it. I've had lots of articles written about it. Sometimes more articles than people that show up. And well, all the credential press and many. Uh, uh, slander attorneys listen to this program okay well if you uh, listen to this program and you show up tonight i will give you a discount on the ticket you can get in for five dollars all uh, come on i'm going the all i think maybe all the boss jocks from uh, g-town radio will be there you'll see our van with the surfboard outside 
Okay, I'll, I'll try to set up another TV with another disc so people can see the movie. So this is great. So you got free popcorn. Shut up! It's got $7. You see a great movie. You get commentary. This is a good plug, right? Yeah, it's fair. Okay. I give it a six. By the way, when it gets hot, is the uh, screening room healthfully air-conditioned? It is healthfully air-conditioned, yes. And uh, is there a decal with a uh, penguin wearing a muffler and a wool hat? It's, saying, dar- it's dark in there, so you can't see it. So if there were, you wouldn't even notice. Uh, it's cold inside. I love those things. Well, we're not into product placement if we can avoid it. Well, no, this isn't the penguin that does the cool cigarettes. This is just the penguin that they would put on the glass door of the healthfully air-conditioned, air-cooled movies. In, in right, but the people who make those decals, that's like product placement for them. So oh. I, don't want to, I don't want to get involved in that because the product placement is inherently distracting. You're right. You're right. Look, Adam, I like when I have movie people in here because I get to ask them questions that I don't know the answer to. Perhaps you won't know the answer to. In Mandingo. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, the best uh, slave master in it is, of course, James Mason. Yes. Uh, when one of his young slaves comes in uh, to see him, and I'm telling you, I had this on, uh, I think, videotape. It's now on DVD, uncut. Okay, It was unavailable, for, unavailable for years, and then Paramount licensed it to Legend Films. You can go out and buy it legitimately. All right. Well, the young woman, female slave comes in and says, Masa, eyes knocked. Um, James Mason says... And I'm going to try and do the best I can. Let the sucker rant. What's that last word he says? <laughs> uh, let, let the sucker rent. I think rant. He's- I don't know. It's James Mason doing a southern accent. So God knows what the original word was. Maybe they were bartering slaves at that point. So let the sucker rent the slave. For, rent. For rent. Use. No, it's kind of like rant. It was almost like Robert Newton Long John Silver. Well, rant. he was doing a parrot impression. Yeah. <laughs> Was the parrot going to be involved in the act with the woman? Let me tell you, man. I reran that line ten times, and I still can't figure out what the hell that guy is saying. Well, I will uh, watch the copy that I have (laughs) and get back to you. Unfortunately, I don't believe it has subtitles, but I will uh, isolate it on the center channel, put my ear right next to the center channel to figure out what's being said. All right. Next question. Uh, Who killed the chauffeur in the big sleep? Trick question. Nobody knows. (laughs) Uh, Not even in the remake does anyone know. There was a remake? Yeah, with Robert Mitchum. Oh, right, because he did all those. He did Farewell, My Lovely, and Robert That I saw. Yes, and those are very, you know, those are both uh, Chandler. Can there be a noir movie in color? I mean... uh, Sure. Uh, Last Seduction, uh, Bound. However, wait a minute. Uh, Okay, let me... Red Rock West. Let me amend that. Can there be... Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I don't believe there can be a uh, a noir movie in color. No Country for Old Men. There can't be a noir movie in color that was already a noir movie in black and white. I I just can't. I can't see. Uh, they just the underneath. Uh, that I, I the underneath Steven Soderbergh, nineteen ninety five. It's pretty good. It's a remake of Criss Cross. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a noir from the forties, obviously. And of course, the Killers, Ronald Reagan's last film. Right. Yeah, that's but that wasn't remade. Uh, although there are a lot of movies called The Killers. No, that's a remake of the Burt Lancaster one. Right, but it's it was made. You're, you're, I thought you were talking about like sort of current in the last thirty, forty years. Oh, okay. Like, you know that was shelved because Reagan shoots at Lee Marvin out of a second story window with a high powered rifle. Right. Yeah. And before it came out, Kennedy got shot, and they shelved that thing. And Ronald Reagan continued to because that was ronald reagan's last movie he was moving into politics and he behind the scenes because he'd been head of the string actors guild when they made the deal with the management to kind of screw the union gee ronald reagan doing such a thing Uh, 
And uh, he tried to keep it shelved as he moved into his next life, which, of course, affected us all in a bad way. Um, but he couldn't, and it never got a theatrical release. It went, it got shown as a TV, made-for-TV movie. That's about right, considering the quality of it. It's pretty good if you don't have any expectations. Um, good Lee Marvin. Good Lee Marvin. I think that might have been a turning point for Lee Marvin. Well, the best movie that Lee Marvin's in that no one has ever seen is Hell in the Pacific. With the I love Mufuni. it. Mufuni. Yeah, Mufuni. and you can't find it with the original ending. The, the original ending is uh, on the DVD, but the studio-imposed ending is the one that's in the movie. And no matter what you see, you could... I've done my own composite where you have the correct ending in there, but you can't legally buy it. Uh, unfortunately. What came first? Ter- uh, uh, Hell in the Pacific or that movie with Darren McGavin and Mako where they're on an island? Uh, I don't Galilee! Know. I've got to assume that it, that it would have been uh, 1968, Hell in the Pacific. Okay. Which, it, if no one has seen, uh, shows up on HGNet sometimes, is available on DVD, though it may be out of print at this point. Great movie. Just turn it off with about 30 seconds left and then go to the extras and watch the alternate ending because that's way better than the crappy one that ended up in theaters. We're not going to give the endings because we're not going to give the oh, endings. No, absolutely. We're not going to give the endings. When, uh, Adam, when you watch movies, I mean, I hate myself for stuff like this. I mean, I'm, Just this? No, I hate myself for so many things. I, I figured, yeah. Especially for all the questions I didn't ask of all the uh, city council candidates. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I forgot to ask so many questions, and they're just bugging me. But it's all right. You didn't ask the Mandingo question? No, I never brought up the man. Mandingo lit the fuse. Blank is the explosion. Drum. No! Absolutely. It was an easy one. Which can be seen on Netflix. Really? Uncut. Wow. Uh, That would be with Ken Norton. Yes. The boxer. Mm -hmm. The man with the best body ever who couldn't throw a punch. And couldn't take one either. Go figure. And beat Ali. Anyway. Perhaps. Well, he fought three to the death fights with Ali, and you're they're right. all very close. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And if you look at Ken Norton's back, and I think we call it a bricklayer's back, and then just take a look at Madonna's back, same back, just different color. Okay. Uh, kind of like um, uh, the uh, forehead of those uh, bad guys in um, the uh, the one of the space movies, the Cyclones, I don't know, like Horseshell Crabheads. Battlestar Galactica? That's it. Yeah, okay. Lauren Green. He went from the from the Ponderosa to a spaceship with no stop in between. Well, there isn't, there's almost no difference anyway. <laughs> no, I love Battlestar Galactica. No, no, no. Star Wars is just a Western in space, so Battlestar yeah. Galactica naturally would be a Western in space. Adam, I hate myself for thinking this way because it takes away from my enjoyment. But, of course, every time I see a movie and they're in winter and there's no vapor coming out of their mouths i say something and the people i'm watching the movie with well throw something at me will you shut the hell up already well but are you like that too no but it can be distracting if they do have vapors one of the downsides of the social network is a scene where they're all blowing out uh sort of cold air is that cgi air it is cgi air and you can tell and i believe though he would not confirm it on the commentary that David Fincher reused the the uh, cold air that he used in Fight Club some 10, 12 years ago. That was already borrowed from Titanic. Which, was that CGI air from Titanic or was that real air? It was CGI air from Titanic. That was un, There was some unused footage that they then used for Fight Club. And then David Fincher, it's, it almost looks identical. And I was very distracted by it in the theater seeing it. I was like, oh, is that the, the Fight Club air being reused? Can't anybody use an ice house anymore? Wells did. Well, there's an outside scene, so it would have been very difficult. 
to uh, show how cold. So it what is so what is it, Adam? Is all the money that they could easily have used to go to an absolutely cold climate? Is that all used on the cocaine? Is that where? Why don't they actually do that? I mean, there's an entire tractor trailer truck filled with illicit drugs outside of every location. Can't they take some of that cocaine money and get them to an actual cold location? Well, they're often in a cold location. It's just getting the breath to be seen is the hard part. You're not necessarily going to see it on screen. It doesn't necessarily play, especially because they shot the social network on HD. And while it's very crisp and clear, the cleanest HD transfer I've ever seen, uh, you can't necessarily pick up that sort of detail, especially night photography doesn't look very good in HD. Mm. So again, you don't, this doesn't take away, this doesn't even hit you, it always hits me. Going back to the killers, you know, at the, one of the climactic scene when uh, Marvin is, is dying and he shoots, I forget who it is, I think Angie Dickinson, and he's got a forty four Magnum and it's got a silencer on it and I'm thinking, silencers don't work on revolvers. The explosion comes out through the open chambers. Did people know that in 1964? I knew it in 1964. I mean, silencers only used on closed-chambered guns, i.e. automatics. And I'm just saying, you know, this is a great scene. Marvin is a great guy. He'll eventually win the Academy Award for a comedy. I knew it then. No, I didn't know it then. But uh, the things like that hit you. They always hit me, and I hate myself. Well, the things that bother me are uh, bad hair and product placement. I mean, the the best mocking of product placement ever is in Repo Man. Not Repo Men, but Repo Man, where... The original, the the uh, Estevez. Right. Um, And Alex Cox, the director, could not clear any products, so all the products just say food or drink on them, and people are holding them up, and it says food, drink. Right. So I find when I see a movie like, say, Disturbia or any Adam Sandler movie, which is just rife with product placement... I just wish that it would say food or drink, simply to acknowledge that we're in a phony universe, since we were already willing to you know, pay to see this phony universe. Well, isn't Adam uh, Sandler in a movie product placement for Ally Jewish Appeal? I mean, seriously. <laughs> okay. Uh- <laughs> I, I thought you were going to make a special education joke. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the Hanukkah song. It haunts me. Um, we're here with Adam Lippy, who has a... A wonderful website called A Regrettable Moment of Sincerity. You got glasses on your cartoon face in the in the thing, and you don't have them here. Where'd you get contact? That's not me. That's my mascot, Larry the Vegan Cannibal. I see. That's why it doesn't look exactly like you, or right. not enough like you. Right. He's he's the one. He's on my business card. He's on all sorts of things. Is he, he a real person? Adam? He uh, he is a real person. I met him, uh, he, he was a limo driver, mm-hmm. uh, and I met him at, in between shifts. And what he would do is he would uh, drive rich guys around, chloroform them, uh, dig out their stomach, and take out the stomach portions, and then eat a salad out of the hole so he could be a vegan cannibal. Oh, see, I thought he was a vegan cannibal in that he only ate people who were vegans. <clears throat> no. Which he, is okay by me. He only, yeah, he, he manages to be a vegan cannibal without breaking either of those rules. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I think if you eat a, we, I think the pleasure principles need to delve in. That's Thursday night. They were on last night. Wait a minute. I have to check the, um, the waste paper basket. No, it's fine. They didn't do any bikini waxes last night. Oh, the residue's on the couch. Actually. Ah! It's the stain the size of Brazil, my friends. 
By the way, you're listening to Adam Lippi, uh, who runs a Thursday night film series at Video Library, the address of which is? 7141 Germantown Avenue. By the way, people just walk up and buy tickets. You don't have to buy them in advance. No, you don't have to buy them in advance. In fact, it's in the video store in the back. So you go in the video store, and I will be standing there um, fake smoking a cigarette, trying to look cool. Okay. Is that an electric cigarette or fake smoking a non No, no. I'm just going to mime it. Okay. Cool. That's tonight. What time? Do the that's, that's tonight at 7. 7. Get there early. Uh, get your you, free if, popcorn. Get your free popcorn. If you get there anytime you know, before 7. Uh, there, and if you get there early, there will always be trailers running mm-hmm. for exploitation films, for uh, any number of obscure movies that I may show at some point because I'd love to show Megaforce. By the way, I have a special request from my daughter uh, asking you if you ever saw a movie called Rubber. Yes, I did. What would you think? It's been a while. I saw it at the film festival last October. My Which one? The, the Philadelphia Film Festival. That's the one given by Sharon Pinkinson and her hair. Uh, <laughs> I love you, Sharon. I'm no. trying to think. It's, it, Andrew Greenblatt runs it. It's the Philadelphia Film Society, and that's separate from Cinefest. Okay, I don't know. I don't hang with them. <laughs> which is run, you know, which was the festival that ran a, a month ago and was a disaster. Okay, uh, uh, why? Why was it a disaster? They didn't get very many film prints, and your they, stuff is better. Yes, actually. They, okay. they showed a movie uh, by a great director named Sean Shano, who directed Suicide Club and uh, Strange Circus and Noki's Dinner Table. Suicide Club, is that the Asian movie where all the kids jump off into the thing? It is, yes. Into the subway? Yes. I love that movie. It's a great love movie. love that movie. And uh, we, we share some movies. I'm telling you, kids, I'm old, and I thought Adam and I would just be at cross purposes, just ships passing in the artistic night. It's not happening. Although I, 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 I know you're, you know, you're, you're stooping a little when I, I'm talking about less obscure stuff that I'm sure you can do. Although, who knows? Who Consider knows? community service. There you, thank you. Thank you. Educate me. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so they were showing his new movie, although it's not new by Japanese standards at this point, mm-hmm. called Cold Fish, which is eventually being released, I guess, in July or August of this year in only AMC theaters. not going to be in Philadelphia, so drive out somewhere and find it, but it's being, I guess, released through the, the site bloodydisgusting.com. Uh, anyway, they were showing uh, Cold Fish, a two-and-a-half-hour movie projected 40 feet high off of a DVD, and it was in the wrong ratio. It was too bright. It was ugly. They showed the last 10 minutes first, uh, and then people had to watch the, the, la- the two-and-a-half hours over again after they know the ending already. That's not nice. And I asked, Did like, they get their money back? Uh, you could if you wanted to, mm-hmm. but you know, not. I guess not many people asked for their money back. I just left when that happened, and asked like, Are you gonna, "Can you fix this?" Because I'll go into the booth and fix it. If you're running a DVD, I could fix the geometry on it to where it at least looks watchable. So they got to keep your money. Well, I didn't pay because I was a critic. So <sighs> there you go. So uh, Sharon Pinkinson had to buy her own activator that week. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I will assume I got that joke. Well, it's her hair. It's like the guy from Cameo. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, so so your movies. Do you look are, at her and say "word up" all the time? No, uh, you know what? Or make but, cherry coke references. When I talk to her, I always don my leather cods piece first, and I always have my pearl handled walking stick. I love that group, man. That guy was the fadeaway Gumby. Fade. Oh, damn, damn good. Uh, anyway, so so at Cold Fish. Um, I just left and asked them, I'll fix it. And they said, oh, we, that's how the movie looked. That's what they sent us. They could have fixed it if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, um, the next movie that they showed was also in apparent disrepair because they couldn't even get it running. And I just got frustrated and left. 
and this was a common problem uh, with most of their films. And I asked the manager at the theater to show me which movies they were actually showing on film. Wait, we have to have a musical interlude. Oh, okay, go ahead. That's it. We're here with Adam Lippy from uh, <laughs> A Regrettable Moment of Sincerity. I'm sorry I interrupted. That's regrettablesincerity.com because a whole regrettablemomentofsincerity.com is too long. Okay, okay, regrettablesincerity.com. Yes. Okay, I didn't No, know. no, it's, uh, it's fine. I used to run a site called We Hate You and Your Horrendous Taste in Everything.com, mm-hmm. which was a, a site for fake film elitists, uh, and we got burned by the fact that the title was so long, people just didn't have the patience to type it all. I never put in .com anymore. I don't need to. It, it takes me to where I want to go. Right, but if you typed in We Hate You, you wouldn't necessarily come up with the site either, although it doesn't exist anymore anyway. So. All right. But I do like I don't like you in that way.com. You ever go there? Mm-hmm. Once or twice. Snarky guy. Like him. Eh, snark is one of the downsides of the internet. Uh, yeah, but this guy's good, even though he doesn't like girls that weigh more than 98 pounds, uh, which we don't. So he likes boys, is what you're getting at. You know, there's been a lot of talk. Anyway, go ahead. But he seems to hate gay people, too, uh, but I think that's a cover. Are you sure the snark is not just hatred? I don't know, but every time I, I, I do. I mean, most homophobes are, in fact, closeted, but... I tend to see traces of Santorum on the screen when I go into his website. I I actually do get that, because I'm a big Dan Savage fan. There you go. He's a great guy. Great guy. Um, And (laughs) his podcast is also really good, if you get a chance to see it. It's excellent. Never heard it. He's live on the... uh, No, it's live, but yes. Yeah, okay. He takes phone calls. It's really quite good. Really? Mm -hmm. Well, then, how does he take phone calls if it's a podcast? They record it. Uh, you know, you call the number and leave a message. Right, like you, car talk. Exactly. And yeah. then if, if you leave your phone number, sometimes they'll call it back. And sometimes He'll call me back. Yes. But he won't call me back because I don't have anything interesting to say. You can make up something. He may not be able to tell. I'm, I'm a meat and potatoes man, you know. Well, <laughs> that's a fetish. Miracle whip and, and handcuffs and that's it. And that's like so dated. With the meat and potatoes? No, actually I'm lying. I hate Miracle Whip. That's strictly for the Goyim, my friend. Okay. Strictly for the Goyim. So, <laughs> I'm still trying to imagine using the meat and the potatoes in that way. But you know what? I can't even watch nine and a half weeks. Not because it stinks, <laughs> but because I'm not a food sex guy. I'd never understood. Apparently, that really uh, uh, tapped into a lot of people's favorite fetish. But I just think you know, I feel the biological byproducts of sex that we manufacture in our own bodies is good enough. I don't think we need to go to the supermarket. And some of that comes from food, so... That's right. Adam, do you like... All right. Am I going to ask this? I guess I will. When you were a kid and you started watching movies, what did you... Oh, the fuck that. All right. Are you embarrassed when you like mainstream movies? No, no. Okay. The movie is well made. I don't... I should, you shouldn't feel shame at all. Uh, you should, you know, considering most mainstream movies are no longer even going for entertainment, they're going to be a product trying to sell mm-hmm. you something, basically trying to sell themselves while you're watching it, their own trailer in a sense. If you see a mainstream movie that's well-made where and coherent, that's rare enough, mm-hmm. that you should, you should applaud it and you should get other people to see it. Inception is a rare, a social network, rare kind of movie which is, has a big budget and is well-made and makes you think about it later as opposed to I don't know Battle Los Angeles or any Adam Sandler movie which is literally just made sort of in a factory sort of way Adam a lot of people on Long Island go to movies Mm -hmm. that's the answer 
and they all seem to have money, and that's where Adam Sandler gets his money from. It's kind of like that sphere of influence. You know, you, you'd think, but he actually makes a lot of money in the Midwest for people who like their expectations low. That's why he never takes off his. He never does a nude scene because all they had to do is see that circumcision, and they'd say. <gasps> Uh, see, I, I go by the sphere of influence in popular culture. It's like if you're from North Jersey, you kind of have to like Bruce Springsteen or you're seen, seen as a traitor. And then that sphere of influence, it's like the sphere of influence in Asia, you know, between uh, Japan and the United States and the early uh, in the mid 30s at, well, frankly, uh, climax at Pearl Harbor. It's like, does the Billy Joel's Long Island sphere of influence overlap the Bruce Springsteen, North Jersey sphere of influence? Now, is this Bruce Willis? Are we including that as well in the Billy Joel? Uh, no, no. Bruce Springsteen era, like when he was Bruno the singer, whatever he was doing. Oh no, nobody knows about that. But you know, he does come from uh, Swedesboro, New Jersey, or or right. Yeah. So, uh, hey, uh, for when I first started seeing Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, mm-hmm. my daughter was six. She really liked to watch it, so we, we watched it together. I said, "That guy's from around here. I can tell just by the way he talk." Well, you were what you saw him at a bar because he was the bartender or something. Well, he was. A, he used to be a bartender, right, but we used to at. watch. No, no, I just could tell by the way he talked to Moonlighting because apparently you didn't feel the need to order a drink when you were watching. Uh, <laughs> I usually feel the need to order a drink when I'm watching television. That and the fact that, uh, well, frankly, Sybil Shepherd was the first Hollywood star who I understand uh, going to the more louche, less lucrative world of television said, you know what. I'm going to eat a little bit more. I'm going to have a big ass, and that's okay. And I remember saying, wow, she's the first Hollywood star that kind of has, well, a big ass, and she doesn't mind showing it. And for that, I give the woman credit. I thought Delta Burke might have been like right on No, but she, would, no, she was actually chubby all over, and since she was, she had been, you know, kind of model-esque, and that was just, she started to bolt. Uh, she was a character role, but here was Sybil Shepard carrying the show, the star, because Willis was unknown. Right. And I recall, you know, because I noticed such things that saying, you know, this is a woman who has a large ass that doesn't mind showing it, and, and they're not hiding it, and it's like, yes... I have the ass of a woman rather than a boy, and I'm on TV. And that really predated the Esquire shot of uh, J Lo and and the Kardashian and all the you know modern American, not obsession, not yet, because our demographics aren't there, but the acceptance of large asses as opposed to giant breasts, which, of course, has been an obsession uh, obsession for years and years and years. Now, does this have anything to do with the influx of Latin American uh, immigrants or uh, the increase in in, in African-American population? Well, yeah, but as, as a white boy who likes a big ass, I say, hail to thee, Sybil Shepherd. You started this. You really did. Thank you, Adam. She's bowing. <laughs> of, and I hope very slowly. And I hope we have a 360 of her bowing. I don't know what she looks like now. She's probably all cut and yanked anyway. By the way, Kim Kardashian's ass is surgically enhanced. There's nothing wrong with that because her sacral dimples are now dashes. They're not dots. They're dashes, and they go off to the side, which means she's been injected and pulled. Her sacral dimples uh, look exactly like Joan Rivers' eyes. They I'm, are. I'm writing this down because it's very important. <laughs> okay, I'm just. Well, I think about these things before I go to bed, and then I can't sleep. 
Adam, that's, why, that's why the couch is in disrepair. <laughs> Ad, no, I never sit on that couch. I never. I sit didn't on say that you couch. were sitting. Hey, Adam, how many starving children could have been fed by the money uh, spent on James Cameron movies since Terminator? And why haven't they? Uh, just made a movie about starving children instead? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Sally Struthers might have been available. Who knows? Did you notice that Avatar, aside from giving off a stench that was more pervasive when, than any of the 3D effects, ended with a knife fight? The computer had a knife at him. The, co- uh, the, the robot had a knife. The robot had one gun. When the gun was knocked out of the robot's hand, it didn't sprout a thousand more guns it pulled a knife out of its robot boot adam why did people not laugh at that point i would assume they did i mean cameron has been obsessed (laughs) with guns for so long you can hear you know in his screenplay for rambo which he wrote i guess most people don't know that for with sylvester stallone although it not they didn't write at the same time clearly because you can watch rambo the second part not the part from a few years ago from 1985, you, you can watch the movie and you can hear the dialogue. And the first half of the line seems to be about guns, and then the second half is all about uh, Stallone's obsession with being a martyr and Jesus mm-hmm. Christ and stuff. Yeah. I like the first Rambo that Brian Dennehy. This is the second one, yeah. Uh, well, I, I stopped watching that. The first Rambo, beautifully filmed, mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest. I, I get tired about movies made in the same old, you know, West Hollywood, Peace, Pacific Coast Highway, you know, any, any movie that when I could see a chase scene in like Europe, that's why, you know, I watched, well, the first uh, uh, Matt Boy Damon, um, whatever that was, uh, Born, Born something, right, right. I like chases. Of course, I loved uh, Ronin, Frankenheimer's Ronin, because, well, it was not made in America. I mean, the, the chases were uh, along the uh, the... Not the Pacific Coast Highway, but the Nice, the Riviera Coast Highway. It was just different. Well, it was a tax write-off. That's where that usually is why they shoot in overseas. You know, just like why they shoot in Canada or now why they shoot in um, Eastern Europe because it's cheaper. Or the new place to shoot when you want to show poverty is New Orleans. And they get a big tax break there. And next, well, is, that's a good thing. New Orleans needs that money. Yes, but it's being—it's basically being exploited. But I guess no one has a problem. The next place they're going to start shooting, and this sounds like a joke, but it's not, is Detroit. That's going to be the wasteland that was, you know, everyone thought would occur in RoboCop. Is RoboCop, actually, it's actually coming early, and that's good. Well, you know, all right. And now the big question: Yes, those of you who know my career. My backstory knew this was going to come up. Adam Lippy, master of all cinemas, uh, the the famous, the infamous, and yes, the obscure. Adam, have you ever seen Double Dragon? You mean the '94 person? I saw it in the theater. If that's the one you're thinking of, that's right. The movie Jim Yukich directed it. A Jim Yukich joint we like with to Mark DeCascos, the guy who should have been a star and never was from Crying Freeman, which never got a release. Uh, Drive, which is a great kung fu movie that never got a, re- a proper release uh, in the U.S. Brotherhood of the Wolf, and then the guy from Party of Fives in it too, isn't he? All I know, Robert Patrick is in it. Yeah, he's the villain. Blonde uh, hair, right? Yeah, he's Alyssa Milano is in it, and Alyssa Milano in hot pants for all of the movie. Andy Dick has a small part. 
in the um, uh, the opening scene. He was just there for the drug truck that was outside. <laughs> Pretty much, the uh, the uh, um, the film opens with a karate fight in a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles. By the way, those scenes were filmed in Cleveland, a home of the producer named uh, Alan. Oh, gosh, I forget his name. He was a sweet boy. He is tragically no longer with us. And Alan I, Sherman, Alan Thicke. No, no, this was a young man who used Alan to be, Partridge. Used to be uh, Joel Silver's uh, gopher and then got some money from a friend of his whose father, Saudi oil money. Joel Silver, who invented Ultimate Frisbee. Did he? Yes. Or that's what he says, like Al Gore says he invented the Internet. I believe he did actually invent Ultimate really? Frisbee in the late 60s. Oh, Alan, oh, shit. All right, anyway. Um, uh, the the movie opens with a karate fight in a post-apocalyptic... Imagine that, a video game adaptation opening with a karate fight. Yeah, that, and it was based on a video game and a comic book. And there are earthquake jacks that are being, uh, that are being used constantly that need to be uh, uh, used to hold up the collapsing buildings because Los Angeles, half of it, has fallen into the sea from the almost constant earthquakes. After the climactic part of that opening karate fight, they go to a, a local newscast helmed by uh, George Hamilton and Vanna White talking about Los Angeles and the curfew that is imposed because roving gangs you know, keep everybody off the street at night. And then there is a commercial for a place called Jack City. Two men talking about uh, the jacks that you have to use to indeed hold up your house. Adam, do you remember that sequence? I it's, do. I think it reminded me of Lethal Weapon 2 with a house on stilts, sort of. Well, actually, the whole thing was a ripoff of RoboCop because sure. it uses local newscasts as a way of setting the scene in a post-apocalyptic crime-ridden future. I yeah. vaguely remember these. The, the, it's been a while since I've seen it on cable, and I saw it in the theater however many years ago, 17 years ago, but... Do you not remember uh, the the as as is a lot of those movies kind of you know gel in your head. Street Fighter came okay. out around the same time. Mortal Kombat came out around the same time, and they're all very similar in their sort of forgetful forgettableness. Well, I liked you better before you started saying all this, Adam. <laughs> but as is um, as is given, well, did in I the insult a Double Dragon fan? Third from the bottom on the credit list at the end of the movie, New Jack City salesman. They don't uh, separate them, but the one on the left, Adam, the one on the left, can you remember anything about him? Is that you? Are you in the You're movie? sitting across the, the table from him, Adam. You go to the rap party, have a good time? Well, the rap parties are no longer held because I don't think Jim Yukich got a second chance. Variety quoted, this movie has two weeks written all over it. I saw that's it. generous. Uh, I, well, they, I think they had to keep it for two weeks at the right, Megaplex. Right, yeah, that's usually the rule. Uh, I saw it in the Megaplex the second day. We Wait, could, they, didn't, they wouldn't bring you to the uh, we could premiere? Not, no, we could not have played bridge in that, <laughs> in that theater because I only had two friends with me. I didn't have much of a movie career after that. But, of course, neither did Jim Yukich. The last thing I saw him... They did a bunch of music videos, right? Is that... Music videos, and I think he did a daytime Emmy, or maybe they let him do a nighttime Emmy. But, of course, uh, Joe Lorario, the New Jack salesman on the right, who was also my partner in a TV show we used to make. Um, uh, when we saw it, and, the, and of course, 
we had we had not seen a pre-screened copy, but we kind of knew when the uh, when it's when the, the role started, and the first thing you saw was a Jim Yukich film. We started to laugh. I said, "Uh oh, this guy." I we and of course we can continue to say um, uh, a Jim Yukich joint or <laughs> forty acres and a pile of shit. Well, Jim Yukich, that's probably the kind of name where it should you know have the credits going on during the movie directed yeah. by Jim Yukich, not a big yeah. you know giant history of the world part one sign. Right. He changed his name to Alan Smithy. Suffice it to say, after that, oh well, that was my shot. I got $1,000. I got all expenses paid. I got to have dinner. Was that a day and a half? Is that sounds like no, scale? No, no. And- we, were, we were there for like three, four days. Stay at, stayed at the fabulous, fabulous Hollywood Roosevelt. Got taken out to dinner by the producer. Actually, the producer, this young boy who has since tragically uh, died, um, um, took us out to dinner. He was a fan of our television show. He took us out to dinner at the next table. Ed Begley Jr. I the Ed Begley Jr. Did you brag and say you were in Double Dragon? No, I. But I told him I drove. A, I rode a bicycle, and he. he That's had, probably more impressive to him than yeah, being I a Double Dragon. So, I think so. Quite tall. Um, and we we I we saw Freddie DeCordova coming out of the showroom at the Hollywood Roosevelt. He was on his hand truck. They were wheeling him. So that that's my Hollywood moment. I've been there many times, but that was the only time. That I, was your Hollywood moment in Cleveland. No, actually, you know, they said they were going to take us to Cleveland to do it or Hollywood, and we had to wait like eight months before they decided. And, of course, that was the eight months that I actually prayed, Hollywood, please, not Cleveland, not Cleveland. I've been to Cleveland, you see. I had to. They paid me to go there, and it turned out to be Hollywood for what we call in the trade pickups. So we did our our, uh, blue screen thing because we were on a commercial, and, of course, there were shots of, uh, I think – Las Vegas casinos collapsing, controlled explosions behind us, kind of doubling for earthquake shots behind us. And since we were selling jacks to keep your house from falling down in the 10-minute interval earthquakes of L.A. of the future, uh, that's what we did. And we did it in a big warehouse on some studio, and I met I met Andy Dick. I didn't know who he was then. If, he, if I knew, I would have asked him for an eight ball, but... And uh, Alyssa Milano, of course, was my co-star, and uh, I didn't meet her either. And uh, that was it. It was just one of the most awful movies, and I'm 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 really proud to have been well, a part. Well, you know, of it. memorably awful is better than forgettable. You damn right. You damn right. There was no double da- double dragon two, but there was a comic book, and I was in that too. And there's a Mortal Kombat two, and the first Mortal Kombat, well well-made for what it is, is completely forgettable. So you have that distinction. Uh, Although not as bad as Mortal Kombat 2. That really is, you know, in a league of its own. You're in your early 30s, right? Yeah. Uh, is it tragic when a guy as old as me talks to a guy like you and says something like, I like Scott Pilgrim versus the world? Uh, only because right? I hated every second of that movie. You didn't like the movie? No, because it was pre-digested. You can oh. read my review. It's pretty detailed, but... It's so sweet. I think Michael Sarah has been cast in that role a bit too much, obviously. Well, that's because that's what he is off screen. Right, and in interviewing him... And there's nothing I've done wrong that with he, that. No, there is That's isn't. what Gregory Peck was like off screen. I not mean not the Michael Sarah kid, but what Gregory Peck Michael was Michael Sarah is scene. insincere on screen and when you interview him. Yeah. So it's, it's helpful in that sense. Um, Adam, are you with me that um, the people who p- continue to play themselves as they are in the supermarket or on the 
on the couch next to Letterman. These are the people who don't become actors, but very often they do become stars. Well, that's the whole point. You know, you're if you're a star, it's because you play yourself, and that's what people like about you. And if you're an actor, you play characters, and people don't necessarily distinguish you, but you're more important in, in a sense. And for the quality of the movie, you're you're more important in that sense. But for the to sell the movie, the star is obviously more important because people have some. I don't know. To give you an idea, uh, something that happened to me while I was trying to get people to come to a movie called Citizen Dog, a Thai film that we show, very entertaining, very much like Amelie. Uh, a oh, woman, she's so sweet. A woman asked me, "Is John Travolta in it?" And I said, "I don't think he speaks Thai, uh, and I think he was probably a little too old to play this role um, of a Thai uh, farm boy who comes to uh, Bangkok." Yeah, but, you know, really high-level Thetans can learn a language in a, in a, overnight. So I think he could have managed that. Yes, but he was a little too white to play the role. Okay, fine. And, and when, when I... Hey, t- Tea House of the August Moon. Uh, well, Brando. Yeah, that's a pretty embarrassing movie. Mm. Brando and a rubber band. It's the same. He borrowed Buddy Hackett's rubber band when <laughs> Buddy Hackett And his eyebrow makeup. And, yeah. Oh, you got to be old to get that one. All right. <laughs> but but uh, the woman said, when I told her that John Travolta was not in it, she said, oh, well, then I'm not interested in seeing the movie. Was that she was not interested in seeing a movie that John Travolta was not in, or she was not seeing a movie directed by an Asian person that John Travolta was not in? The latter was not specified, but I'm going to okay. assume that the former is what she meant, that because John Travolta was not in this Thai film, that she was not interested in seeing it. So she would see moment to moment. Moment by moment. Moment by moment. Yes. With Lily Tomlin. I have a review on my site. I've seen it. I've seen it in HD, in fact. Yeah. It is a magnificent disaster. Yes. Um, that will apparently never get released. So It was released, 78? No, I mean at, on home video. You can okay. only find you know gray market stuff if you want to see it, unless you happen to watch Universal HD that week that it was on, and I recorded it. Not even in the LGBT uh, film festival? Come on now. No, I mean, it is a, it is a very funny movie because they look like brother and sister. And she keeps saying, and his name, character name is Strip, and he keeps saying, she keeps saying, oh, Strip. Let's go gay. Let's go gay, Adam. Now we know, it's well known, the, uh, the gay people, the gay men who, uh, you know, continued to play straight. And everybody's talked about the Meebus strip that is Pillow Talk, of a closeted gay man playing a macho straight man, then within the movie pretending to be a gay man, well, that's standard. That's in order to have sex with a straight woman. The, most of the, the matinee idol types have yeah. been gay. And right. that's because a lot of them have sort of an a, a effeminate quality to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are endorsed by the teenage girls because that's what they're into at the time. Right. And so you have people like Travolta, Tom Cruise. You know, Rock Hudson isn't necessarily effeminate, but uh, but there's a there's a long list of you know effeminate types. You know, even in music. Justin well, I mean, Timberlake, these guys aren't effeminate in their in their life. They just happen to uh, have uh, sex gir- with other men. They're girlish in the sense. I'm not talking about. You like, think so? No, they are. I think I think. You can describe a lot of these people as pretty, which is not normally how you would describe men. Well, I, <laughs> you haven't been around my bathroom. I mean, I look in the mirror every morning and I just say, I'm well, so... Well, you don't say pretty. You might say, oh, you're good looking. It's not the same thing, is it? Mm. Like, there's, there's an attractive guy. There's a good looking guy. But a lot of these guys who were stars were pretty. Like, uh, what was the guy who just came out? Well, the kid is pretty. The cap, the crappio is pretty. Exactly. That's a great example. Yeah, he's he, pretty. He's pretty. But he's straight. We think. Yeah, I, I pretty much 
figure he's straight. Well, I mean, first of all, there's no way to know. Okay, here's where I'm going. Okay. I want to get to a movie from the golden age where we have absolute honest proof where a closeted gay man, playing obviously a straight man in the movie, is making out with a closeted gay woman. Now, in the golden age, there's a really interesting concept that women, bold women, were uh, uh, star-quality women were never precluded or, or never felt danger acting kind of mannish. Right. Kind of forceful. John Crawford, and, you know. Stanwick, of course. Right. And even to, and this is pre- and post-code, of even, you know, absolutely alluding to lesbianism. Right. Dietrich, of course, the mm-hmm. classic example. Of course, that was death. To any male star, right? But then all the George Cukor films, who was who was out, yeah, uh, right. Sort in Hollywood, he was out. He was a women's director, right? That, a lot of the that. women that he would direct, he would they were sort of mannish. And even yeah. his last film with Jacqueline Bisset and Candace Bergen, called Rich and Famous, he somehow made them mannish, despite mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. couldn't be quote girlier as as actresses, right? And of course, the great Nicholas Ray film, uh, the Western. I was going to say Rebel Without a Cause because that's no. Well, of that's course, that's a totally homoerotic movie. Oh, sure, absolutely a homoerotic. No, um, no, the western with uh, Crawford and Sterling Hayden, and I'm blanking, and it's oh. so great. Oh, oh yes, uh, I know what you're talking about. Mercedes McCambridge, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Scott Brady. I know everybody in the damn movie, and I just saw it two weeks ago. I know what you're talking it's about. It's not yes. Rancho Notorious. No, it's not. It is. Damn it. Okay. Call us up at 215 609 4301. I've been getting four nights of sleep ever since the election. That's my excuse. Well, look, that's a, the, the great the great gender-bending movie. The, the classic female parts are played by men. Mm-hmm. One, a singer, Sterling Hayden, you know. Uh, turncoat to the Communist Party during the Red Scare. Scott Brady as Dancing Dan. He, he, he even a sobriquet is is a kind of effeminate one. Dancing guy, and of course Crawford is all butched up, and mm-hmm. Mercedes McCambridge, who played left end at Stanford for years, um, is completely Butch Dyke. Uh, but aside from that, and I guess in 1952, as Lenny Bruce used to say. Effeminate men were always talked about, but um, uh, butch women were always, oh, yeah, she's a real tomboy. Right. (laughs) Nobody was ever hip to that, as Lenny Bruce said. What does she do for a living? She's a scout, Girl Scout master. Oh, okay. Hollywood seemed to allow a real amount of gender bending uh, in women's roles, but none in men's roles. Well, I mean, some like it hot is an exception, but... Yeah, but they were so aggressively homosexual. I mean, they were after women the whole time. And, of course, one was a comedic role. No, what was the last line of the movie is is an acceptance acceptance of of the fact that he's a man. So, you know, they do, and and Lemon doesn't even, he's like, okay, fine. Yeah, Yeah, that, it is really a touchstone of perhaps the change. Of course, Kennedy would live for three more years. (laughs) And then there's, of course, uh, you know, uh, Spartacus and... And her and, you know, well, they stuff. cut that part out, didn't they? I yeah. like oysters. I like clams. What do you like? Right. Uh, there should be a rhyming verse in there. Um, of course, it's with uh, um, Olivier, who, of course, uh, was lovers with Danny Kay. We know that now. But 
is there a scene where a, a real we know now she's a lesbian and a real we know now he's gay had a heavy makeout scene in a classic Hollywood film. Well, I mean, you know, moment, moment by moment is the rare example. So you 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 have that because they're yeah. Travolta's not out, but you know, that's right. Not okay, pretend. but uh, he's a Phaeton. Right. They're above all that. Well, they're not allowed. That's part of a lot of why they. Yeah, how about that? You know, some some. That? I don't know why the you know Phaeton God would care, but um, well, it's they hook up the e meter to their nuts, and that gets feedback. Okay. See if they're stressed. Is that? I think the meetings back to the meetings. Okay. Here's, here's my, well, the, the number one meeting more interesting than any Vin Diesel movie is the meeting where Vin Diesel, except there's one movie that he made. That's very good. And the courtroom movie, one. Uh, that's okay. Okay. Uh, it's a short film he directed called multifacial in which the whole notion is that he looks either Italian, Hispanic, black, he can play any of these things, and he won't get cast because people, oh, you're just too this, even though he was none of these things. You're kidding me. See, that's my meeting. That's uh, Vin Diesel's agent Mm -hmm. going to the studio. Spielberg cast him in Saving Private Ryan because of that short. And and, see, I'm so ignorant on all the reality of this, but I just, first time I saw Vin Diesel, I said, here's how the meeting went. The black people will go and see him because they think he might be black. The Hispanics will go and see him. They'll think he might be. Uh, here's a buddy movie that you save half the, the the cast on because you got one guy who's his own damn multiracial buddy. You don't have to. You don't have to pay Danny Glover. Well, because that would be confusing. Yeah, because you can't have your right buddy cop comedy where you right. don't know the race or origin of the other person exactly so here's a buddy movie where you only have to pay one guy and since nobody knows who the hell he is you don't have to pay him all that much and they said we're with that and that's how vin diesel got his first you know three four picture deal well no it came off of saving private ryan because he's a supporting role really yeah. in his first film that was big that sci-fi film the uh, not chronicles of rick the, the original film which is whose name is a uh, pitch black um that's kind of where he he got you know, noticed he got noticed in Boiler Room, and that's when he started to get his his you know, and and he's good in supporting roles, and that's kind of where he should be, is the kind of tough guy, uh, badass type who is just sort of on five the, one, yeah, just sort of on the edge of the screen. Well, all action heroes are really short, except except Steven Seagal. They're the whole point of he's just fat and six foot four. How do you jump from a moving train to a helicopter and then back? And your sports jacket never flies open to, to, so everybody can see your huge ass gut. I think that's called CGI. I'm not okay. sure. <laughs> and and who is the bad guy in that? That's uh, Eric Bogosian. Right. Right. I, 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 Back I, then, I talked to Eric Bogosian about that very really? film. I hate him. Yeah. Did you ask him, uh, was Ron Silver not available? Is that why Eric Bogosian, the answer to when you couldn't afford Ron Silver? Well, Silver was probably shooting uh, The Arrival, where he's both playing his evil snake self and a Mexican or, or with was, a mustache. Or he was he was getting a he was getting a, a six figure paycheck for I'm the only guy on the periphery of Hollywood who will who is welcome at a conservative Republican gala as a as a master of ceremonies. Right. But I asked Bogosian. Bogosian yeah. was doing a book reading, and I was at this book reading, and he it was a series of short stories, and there were a lot of people there, so we got hit a quite a rather lengthy question and answer period, and. He had the, one of these characters that was like this ex-CIA type, 
you know, claimed he'd been in Vietnam but was bald and fat and obnoxious and hit on all the young women. And I said, is that based on Steven Seagal? And he mm-hmm. looked at me, paused, laughed, and said, no. Okay, <laughs> paused, laughed. Of course, there's the Eric Bogosian meeting, which is, uh, yeah, he, he's good, he's Jewish, no, he's Armenian, that's okay. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, he introed himself when he said, you know, I've done sex, drugs, rock and roll, I've done, you know, all yeah. these different things, talk radio, and he says, but you probably all know me from Under Siege 2. Uh, you know what? Under Siege 1 is a great movie. It really is. It doesn't I hold re- up that well. Oh, no, I like it. I still like it because, you know, um, um, there are all, in some movies with certain stars, there is, as I like to say in big, bold letters, the inherent problem that must be solved. And the inherent problem that must be solved in Under Siege... Is a stripper and a cake? No, uh, no problem there for me. No, it is, of course, Steven Seagal. And here's how it was beautifully, beautifully solved. You, you, you're making the supported character in his own right. movie. Steven Seagal's lack of talent cannot be mitigated by one over-the-top performance of a real actor. You need two. It is so profound. Yes, you got to counteract that bad shit with two. That's why Out for Justice, while being one of the funniest <laughs> movies ever made, doesn't, yeah. doesn't work legitimately as a movie because there's only one. There's William Forsythe, right. who's ridiculous and over-the-top, but he doesn't overcome whatever Seagal's doing with his ridiculous Goomba accent throughout the movie. <laughs> so they had, of course, Tommy Lee Jones in one of his greatest performances, I think. Just a great evil comic performance and uh, Gary Busey who of course has an evil comic well everything Gary Busey who is in the the supporting role of the movie we're showing next week which is Barbarossa oh yeah with Willie Nelson Nelson. uh, has never been seen in widescreen unless you were in a theater in 1982 that one week um, I we will we'll be showing it in widescreen for the first time well Adam you know to for the full effect of that movie you should allow both marijuana and Ritalin to be ingested during that film. Marijuana for Willie Nelson, of course, Ritalin. Well, see, if you combine them, you might go into a coma. That's the problem. (laughs) No, I think there needs to be two sides. There need to be the Gary Busey people who are all hopped up on Ritalin. Right. And the... (laughs) See, and so I think that's why um, Under Siege works. And, of course... In the maybe to me it's it, with Steven Seagal it's very difficult and, and while I'm a fan of sort of his essence hence his line in On Deadly Ground about what is the essence of a man somehow a fat guy a fat white guy who knows kung fu uh, okay nah. <laughs> um, is he Jewish Steven Seagal because I don't Seagal think so there's that joke a... like you know w- when he was younger he was little Stevie Seagal but mm. um, and then the kung fu Jew Jeff Speakman but he went away unfortunately even though the perfect weapon's pretty entertaining Seagal. The problem with Under Siege is that it's too mediocre, to, to me, is that it's ne- neither good enough nor bad enough. Like, his really fantastic, terrible stuff, like the movie he directed on Deadly Ground. Mm-hmm. and Alfred Michael Caine. Just- yeah, Michael Caine. Out for Justice, which is entertaining from the first second. It's so horrible and over the top and just, like, try to figure out what's going on in this movie. You know, everything is so ridiculous. And a, a lot of the really mediocre ones don't stand out. So... Under Siege probably is the best movie he's ever been in, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think, oh, I want to watch that, because it, it's not necessarily outstanding for its genre of being the Die Hard ripoff. Like, if I want to watch the Die Hard ripoffs, right. there are plenty of other ones. Even Die Hard 3 is more entertaining as a, you know, Die Hard ripoff, in a sense. Which one? That was the... Uh, one in New York. 
Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched a little bit of that. It's look, it, look. it's bad, but you know it's very entertaining and it's sort of ridiculous high energy. In the diehard uh, closed off area of Jeopardy and terrorist movie genre, which I guess Die Hard was really the first one. I don't think you can call the Desperate Hours the well, grandfather. Black, of Black that. Sunday as well. Well, Black Sunday is in a stadium. Yes, but that's, kinda, but that's, that's, an, that's an enclosed notion. I guess. I guess. Bruce Stern, right? Bruce Stern, the bad guy. George Siegel, the good guy? Uh, I believe so. Frankenheimer directed that. Yeah, the blimp at the Super Bowl. Frankenheimer Pretty... directed The Challenge, which we showed a couple weeks ago, with, with the Aikido dire- uh, done by Steven Seagal. You know, uh, we don't have enough time, but maybe we do. But you have to be back. Will you be back again? Sure. Good. You know, Frankenheimer, what a tragic career. You know, he had an absolute run of fantastic movies, fantastic luck in the 60s, and then just... Mentor in Canada, The Train, Seconds. Yeah, and then just Death in the 80s and 90s. And I was really, going to say, The French Connection, too, is really not that bad. No, I enjoy it. Yeah. That was the last one, and then just... Well, The Challenge is a very entertaining movie. It's ridiculous, but it's very entertaining. It's from 82. Yeah, but that, after that, Keith you know, Carradine... No, 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 no it's no. Scott Glenn and Tashira McCoy. Scott Glenn, right, right, right. And then just nothing, and really didn't come back till uh, Ronan. Ronan. I yeah. mean, you can make a case for 52 Pickup, but it's not, it's not one of the better Elmore Leonard adaptations. No. That that goes down and really quality. It kind of rubs up against you know to live and die in L.A. Alan Rudolph kind of. Well, to live and die in L.A. That is extraordinary. I, that holds I, up so well. Like and I'm not a freaking movie. fan, and I really love that movie. Yeah, I like that movie. You, you but, can read an extensive piece on my set about to live and die in L.A. But Frankenheimer just went you know uh, into the toilet for 20 years, and you know Spielberg's been in the toilet since uh, Close Encounters, and he still seems to make money. Really, I mean, I. Temple, you you I didn't love, you I, didn't like uh, Close Encounters. No, I love yeah. Close Encounters, but Temple I like of, Jaws. Temple of Doom, it. I think, is a great, great piece of crap. Like like really entertaining. Knows what it's doing. Has the editing. You know, is so sharp and quick, and it goes so far over the top, which is sort of the mistake with the third one, which just repeats most of the stuff from the first movie. And I, I'm so entertained by the second one. Just like the, the that's the one with the little kid. Yeah, the, the one. Like, I mean, yes, he's annoying. But the and the clip the, which the movie goes at. I'm. I mean, it's so it just moves and moves and moves and moves. See, that's a unique movie, and and uh, well, it has it shares it with one other thing. That's a unique, uh, a semi-unique movie. Yeah, I know it's an infinitive. Um, in that, uh, as we spoke before about the uh, reviewers that say non-top stop thrill ride. That was the first movie I ever saw that I felt. The actual set was built to be a thrill ride, to be ride, to be disassembled, well, he, he, and then he reassembled it. at the Universal Studios. He acknowledges it with the cart ride. I mean, that's, yeah. that's very and, much deliberate. And he, by the way, coaster. me and Joe Lorario actually went on the ET ride um, uh, at Universal Studios because we thought it was going to be cool. And all right, I'm going to break one of my rules. In the middle of the ride, we we said to each other, "No, this is the gayest thing we've ever done." <laughs> But I, I believe that movie was actually intended to be uh, the set later disassembled and as a tax write-off or maybe as another line in the budget to be reassembled at Universal well, or Disney World. It, or it's, it's one of the early examples of uh, when I was in college, we took a screenwriting course, uh, and the first movie we looked at was the first Terminator, which mm-hmm. is a nearly perfect screenplay in terms of how streamlined it is and how quick it moves. And uh, the, the only camera movie to run well under two hours and the one where he doesn't have some director's cut that runs 45 minutes longer. Uh, well, we looked at that, and the reason we didn't look at the second one is because our screenwriter 
correctly pointed out is that the second one is just a uh, series of conclusions. Mm. Each scene is building up and it has this conclusion and then you've got to keep topping itself. And Temple of Doom is like that, is that it continuously tries to top itself. I think it's more successful than Terminator 2, though Terminator 2 you know, still is entertaining. It has the little kid problem too, just like uh, Temple of Doom. But in fact, Terminator 2, the fact that it was so successful made it so that template was used so frequently. The, you know... Got to top the last sequence. Got to mm-hmm. top the last sequence, leading up to a big conclusion, as opposed to one story that leads to a big conclusion. As a, you know, you know the the individual set piece issue that Michael Bay has excelled at, and I don't mean like he makes good films. I mean that that that's what he does. That template is going to be used for a long time, but it gives you no momentum when you watch a movie. It's just totally exhausting. Well, frankly, I adore Jaws, and of course, as has been the subject that has been completely exhausted about the fact that the damn shark wouldn't work and that's what made the movie because of course Spielberg is not about suspense because he is a Steven Spielberg is a childish director which is different from being a childlike well Paul and Kale who who praised a lot of his early films said that when more than the first, two, more than uh, aside from Sugarland Express, which she, is not a bad movie. No, she liked Sugarland Express. I'm not she bad liked, with that. She she liked E.T. She liked oh uh, Lassie with scales. Uh, yes, the thing is better from that same you know, yeah. time. Well, period. Lassie's better too. And she liked uh, Jaws and, and uh, Close Encounters. Ex- she two po- excellent movies. She pointed out that because he's been making movies so like since he was a kid, he has no childhood to make movies of and no adulthood to make movies from. So he would continue to make childish movies for the rest of his life because he never stopped to have a real life. It gets worse than that. I mean, he really he really goes from one pride... In a way, you know, I'm sure he, he, he worships Wells. And, of course, the, uh, the, the big thing about Wells that everybody talks about is, you know, fear of conclusion. He just left the movie and he let Robert Wise or other... Cutters, you know, rip it to shreds because he's off somewhere. You know, well, he didn't bang in. That, that's uh, not Rita Hayworth. That's or, not his, none of that was his fault. It was all blamed on him while he was in, I think, Brazil shooting a documentary. Yeah, it's all. And they re, all, they recut Magnificent Ambersons, and then he was thought of now as a guy who just couldn't finish anything. Right. It was unreliable, and so he couldn't get financing for anything. I, I don't really think that's fair or his fault for any of these unfinished projects that he did. No, part of it's his fault because, you know, he told everybody to go to hell all the time, and when they said, no, we need some changes, he said, you make them, screw you, I'm off banging Rita Hayworth or something else. That doesn't sound so bad. I know. Oh, no, absolutely not. I probably would have done exact the same, exactly the same thing. And I'm doing a wine commercial next week, by the way. But Spielberg, you know, at the end of, uh, at the end of some of his movies that aren't execrable, that have good parts into it, like the first dinosaur movie. Or AI or something. Uh, oh, no, awful, awful. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, oh, come on, man. I mean, it has a beautiful ending. Unfortunately, there's another 15 minutes, but... Maybe. You know, I watched the movie, and then I read the, the Kubrick backstory, and I watched the movie, and I said, I don't like this. I but don't the... think Kubrick was really ever going to make that movie. I think he was just... Kubrick was never going to make a lot of movies. I think he was, he was just gonna... winding Spielberg up. Can we talk about Kubrick now? You want to talk about Kubrick? I'd rather not talk about the Spielberg, because, okay. because I, I felt the kind of slapdash ending of... Uh, of uh, Jurassic Park said, uh, you finish this, I've got to go make a movie about Jews. 
you know. Yeah, that's the common theory that yeah. it, when you watch the behind the scenes material on that movie, he's only there for the best scene in the movie, which is the T Rex attack. Right. And if you watch any of the behind the scenes documentaries available, he's not in any of it except for that scene mm-hmm. because he was off shooting Schindler's List, and right. that's probably true. Yeah, and that's why it's like a really kind of a at home. It doesn't play very well because it's it's you know loses all the scale, and it just looks like a really clunky B movie with a chillion dollars worth of special effects behind it. Impressive special effects, but still pretty poor movie around it. What skeeves you out more, the fact that uh, Steven Spielberg wants to think of, of us to think of Schindler's as an art movie because there's one scene of a little girl in a red coat in a black and white movie, or that Steven Spielberg wants to wants us to think about Schindler's List as a, a, as a movie about Jews when the hero isn't Jewish, or well, that's that's the white savior <laughs> notion. When you make a movie about brown or yellow people. Um, the hero is always white, and he's the one who always go through all of the character arc and all the changes, and all the brown and yellow people are either really good or really bad, and he learns something from them, and he goes through the whole thing. And right. just like Gran Torino, you know, he even gets the martyr scene at the end of Gran Torino. So it's, it, I was really hoping to like that movie a lot more than I liked it. I thought it, it was hilariously bad. And, and, and part of it was all right, but I think Carol O'Connor could have done just as good a job. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I laughed most of the way through... Uh, Gran Torino and not the parts that were meant to be funny because yeah. it just it was so boilerplate in the white savior you know you could hear the cranking of the machine and the white saviorness of it so I mean even like Ghost of Mississippi which is about Medgar Evers Medgar Evers dies in the first five minutes and the movie's really about a white lawyer like To Kill right. a Mockingbird and you know what uh, um, Mississippi Burning same thing mm-hmm. you know but I like Mississippi Burning Constant Gardner another great example of that I don't think I've seen it okay well it's about the Ben Kingsley no, no. no. Um, oh, she won an Oscar for it. Uh, Aronofsky's ex-wife, uh, Rachel Weiss. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, Rafe Fiennes, I think, is the, the male mm-hmm. lead. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's you know about disease in Africa and you know mm-hmm. finding some cure for something and pharmaceutical industry. And it's about the poor African people. And the stars are all white. And the mm-hmm. African people are all background extras, basically. I need to slam Spielberg just a little bit more. I need to get it. You're Jewish, right? Yes. Okay. And and then the oh the if Schindler's List couldn't get any worse any more pandering they put the fucking bracketing of the Jews with the stones before and after just it, well, he, he's not going to be subtle he doesn't do subtle and look and you just see the arc of Spielberg's career that in his early movies his his representative on screen his alter ego is a little short chubby Jew and then all of a sudden it becomes a tall rangy Christian. You know, when he stopped using Richard Dreyfus, that was the end of Steven Spielberg's even just soup song of honesty about anything. Well, what he said about Close Encounters is that he couldn't make that movie today because he's a family, because he couldn't have a character who made that sort of decision, who walked away from his family to go look at, you know, alien spaceships. And I understand that theory, and maybe that's part of why he matured in some sense, and not necessarily really? in a positive way. Are you sure he, he did what he meant to say wasn't that I couldn't have a movie that appealed to Christian America with two Jews in the, in the leads? Uh, <laughs> Terry Garr. I'm, I'm, well, no, but I'm... I'm, I'm yes. And I couldn't have a short Jewish guy but, in but the lead? We, I need to can... appeal to the megaplexes in Kansas because it's more about money to me than about... Which, in a way, just feeds into America's anti-Semitism? But most... Actors, writers, directors, studio heads, uh, record producers, they're almost all Jewish. Comedians, almost all Jewish. Yeah, so but even- they threw 
hundreds of Jews out of their business so they could keep getting money from Christian America during the Red Scare. They don't care anything about their people. No, they don't care. I'm agreeing with that, but it's one of those like unspoken don't talk about it, even though we all know. You ever see the, the one of the best episodes of um, the Larry Sanders show mm-hmm. where Hank comes out with a yarmulke <laughs> and he, he starts... Dear Jew... Keep wearing your Jew hat. Yes, it was something like that. <laughs> yes, that and, was the letter he got. And, 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 it's, and uh, um, uh, Artie says to him, you know, you got to take that off. And, and Hank says, uh, well, isn't Larry Jewish? And he said, yes, but he doesn't talk about it. Everyone knows, but it's sort of an unspoken thing. And that's sort of how... Like Conan O'Brien. He doesn't talk about being... Uh, oh, wait a minute. Well, but you know, it's part <laughs> of his okay. joke. It's part of his joke. And you right. can make jokes about being Jewish because that's pretty common. I mean, Woody Allen doesn't exist without it. Right. Um, he doesn't really much exist anymore anyway, though. <laughs> true. Uh, I did skip the screening of his movie that's coming out, I guess, next week. Because okay. it just seemed – Midnight in Paris, it's called. It, it just he seemed, he makes know. movies in Europe now because it's more Jewish that way. <laughs> uh, not just that, but he is bored. It always yeah. looks, he looks very bored. There's, he shoots everything in what I call brown vision, mm. in which everything is this ugly sort of – dark, leafy brown that you don't really... Sludge. It all looks like sludge. That's all right. You know, I think there is room for movies made by people that don't watch television, and that's obviously what Woody Allen is, Mm -hmm. a guy who doesn't watch television. Because he's making TV movies really at this point. (laughs) Yeah, but he doesn't watch it. I know, but he doesn't. So he doesn't know that he's making glorified HBO Mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. Sort of about that level, and not even some of the better ones. We're not Mm -hmm. even talking like... You don't know Jack or, you know, the Don King one, which are yeah. great. But we're talking like sort of the middle range of HBO right. quality. Kubrick made 13 movies, right? Pretty much something like that. 13 movies. Mm-hmm. And the last three were like over a period of 20, 30 years. Yeah. Like Sometimes I go to bed uh, hope, uh, thinking if he could just have made one more just to get the taste of Eyes Wide Shut out of me. I didn't like Eyes Wide Shut when I first saw it, but uh, seeing it again, yeah. I, I do it's I worse. do take to it uh, simply because of the – it's creepy. Uh, you, you can ignore uh, Cruz, who I don't think is that you bad. You can't, though. You, you can't. Can, you can. He's in every scene. Yes, but the way I – when I first saw the movie, I thought of it as one of those beach exploitation movies. Like uh, my girlfriend and I watched Spring Break the other day, um, the okay. 80s exploitation movie. Oh, yeah, that one. Okay. Um, and it works just like that because Eyes Wide Shut is about a guy – who is teased sexually from all angles yeah. but is too much of a pussy to get laid. And mm-hmm. that's the entire two and a half hours of Eyes Wide Shut. And w- once I acknowledge that, I could ignore the obvious progression of it. And I thought Kidman was really quite terrific in it. And all the other – Great ass. All the other parts, Sidney Pollack is one of his best performances. Wonderful in it. And I think you can start to – you can take in some of the side things and it becomes sort of a, an interesting fever dream. To me, and I like the photography, and I got over the one-note music that he keeps hammering home, which seemed to be... Well, Ligeti, again, like 2001, same guy. Right, but I mean, it seemed to be just sort of like, this is my career, one-note, one-note, yeah. one-note. I got over that, and I really started to take to it at home. I, I agree that it, it, you know, the first time, it didn't, it didn't work for me. It was ugly-looking and strained and overlong. Well, I... Uh... And cold, but I got used to the cold. Maybe that's what it was, is that I accepted that all his movies would be cold. I hate to hop on uh, really popular bandwagons, but I guess I got to pop on hop on the uh, Tom Cruise needs to go. Uh, the world would have been a better place had he never been born, which, by the way, is what George Bernard Shaw said about uh, Napoleon. There's no denying he was a very great man, but there's no denying that the world had been a better place had he never been born. Hey, it's a good line. Uh, 
I don't know, Tom Cruise ignorable. I mean, he's a star. He's not playing Yeah, people. but the thing is, uh, the irony of Eyes Wide Shut that not only did he ruin Kubrick's last movie, but he also had the power, according to everything that I've read, to be the one to CGI out the things that would have given it an X rating. That wasn't after... him that did that. That was Warner Brothers that did that. I, I, Warner Brothers I at the read... time had a policy that they would not release an NC-17 movie. Okay. And Cruz had nothing to do with, with that stuff. But do you feel that if Kubrick had lived, he would have been able to just relentlessly... You know, Kubrick had an awful lot of clout with Warner Brothers over the years. I think the only... The he only... could have bought the goddamn print and said... I'm going to release it the way I want I think want the it. fact that Kubrick was on the set and, and uh, Cruz was there was what allowed the movie to be shot over a period of like two years, which is ridiculous. And also Kubrick never went over budget. He never did. And that's No, all. he did, but he, he would go over budget, but it's just that you know Warner Brothers, I guess, essentially didn't care. Can a man who had the power to pull Clockwork Orange out of British distribution for a generation not have also had the power, had he lived, to say... This, these shots stay in. He was not going to win that argument with the MPAA. He wasn't. And I, I mean, we'll never know. But again, I don't think it really matters. I don't, you know, seeing the uncut version versus the R-rated version, there's not an enormous difference. We're talking like four or five frames. And while I agree that, you know, director's intention is everything, we'll never know his intention because he, he finished the movie, but it might have just been a rough cut or we don't even know how much fine tuning was going to go on. But Kubrick is in the same position as what I was talking about earlier with Kenneth Lonergan and Margaret, except that Kubrick had more clout and could shoot a movie for two years and have it germinating for all that time and waste all the money and research and all that other stuff. Well, bad actors in movies that they ruin or movies, yeah, that movies that they ruin really happen from two in the, in the case of directors that have clout, not just the movie company saying, put this guy in, he brings the teenagers, comes from, I think, two areas. And in, in Kubrick's sense, we see that, it, uh, we, we have to intuit that Kubrick says, as some directors do, say, I am God, I can make a movie with anybody about anything and make it good, and actors are just furniture. And perhaps Kubrick, I tend to agree with, he wasn't God, but he was damn close. And of course... Uh, the, but that was the, his downfall because all his movies are so cold because he is only about craft. And so the human element is irrelevant in his movies, which is why 2001 is... That's is, okay by me. But then you're not making a movie. You're making a planetarium exhibit. No, you're making a dazzling self-contained object that can be viewed again and again. That's not a movie, though. Mm, see, I think it is. There's no. It, there has to be human element in it. I mean, that's you know. Granted, it's a heavy-handed, not particularly good movie. But Simone or Sim One, the one that Andrew Nichol made with Al Pacino about seven or eight years ago, where he CGI's a, a, a blonde star to be in his movie, mm-hmm. um, but she doesn't exist, and everyone thinks he's she, he's kidnapped her, or they won't see her, and she's a mystery, and it becomes a whole thing. The whole point being that you can't make a movie without human beings. I think is essentially correct. See, I, I that's why those those um, you better talk to the people at Pixar about that one. Well, that's a little different though, um, because they they're not about human beings. So you don't like you don't enjoy Kubrick movies just for their dazzling qualities. Of course, the problem you, is the worst. The he worst does things, things that no one in, else has ever done. Sure, but the worst things in each of his films are glaring because it's all technique. Because you know, to me, I can't sit through The Shining because it's obvious to me in the first five minutes, even when I had never seen it before, that Jack Nicholson is crazy. Mm-hmm. And we know that in the first five minutes and the next 140 are just going to repeat that. He doesn't, didn't, he didn't do subtle. So 
we don't get any progression. I can understand Stephen King harping on it's not really what I wanted to do. I don't think his TV version is better, but awful. But Hate that's him. but you know the you know the problem with Clockwork Orange is that he doesn't establish the perspective of Alex. You know he doesn't have to take sides, but he does have to differentiate it from just being an adult's version of of like grandfather's version of trying to make a porn but being too scared to do it. Well, I believe there are dazzling objects that always entertain and you can always But they're just isolated moments. Full metal jacket is perfect. You've got an isolated first 40 minutes which mm-hmm. works once and in the rest of the movie pretty much nobody likes and I can understand because it's a totally disorganized Vietnam movie. That doesn't well, that never comes into focus because he Vietnam doesn't care. But Vietnam was totally disorganized. Yes, but he the difference is he doesn't he doesn't care. And, for instance, the movie we're showing tonight, Bullet in the Head, the characters end up in Vietnam. They, they escape Hong mm-hmm. Kong to avoid the mob, and they end up in the Vietnam War, and they're totally confused, and they're on no one's side. And it's that, but that at least explained the confusion and showed you the sides without necessarily having to sink you into the Hamburger Hill platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, all that stuff. And Full Metal Jacket. Hate platoon. Yeah, it's not. It does not, does not hold up very well. I Samuel Barber, are you kidding? It's Why just, not just the Nutcracker Suite? It's just. I mean, he, it's just does anybody handed. not know that fucking music anymore? He's he's heavy-handed and obvious, but you know he made Salvador the same year, which is a great movie. And I, yeah, that is good. And in a way, I I I like Oliver Stone in that he's really a wonderful throwback to the real bad bullshit artist filmmakers who said my next film is going to be super colossal. And of course, it's just a big stinking piece of shit. Right. I mean, but he's, he's, he's one of the most enter- saying that one of the stuff. most entertaining blowhards. Yeah, really great. He. Oh, do you think uh, uh, Tarantino is kind of following in his footsteps? Uh, no, because Tarantino is not interested in anything but homage. Right. That's uh, for you uh, non-French speakers. That's that's plagiarism that isn't actionable. Right. <laughs> that's why for, for us um, who have seen a lot of Asian films, the first Kill Bill was very boring. Because we just started recognizing where he's stealing from. Yeah. And if you don't know the films that he's stealing from, it's probably entertaining. And just like with a lot of other films, the second time I saw the first part, I learned to ignore how annoying I found just the constant nudge-nudge self-referential stuff mm-hmm. was. Because I, you know, I know I'm watching a movie. You don't have to continuously remind me that you're doing as much. And there's so many references to various Asian films, some that are better than Kill Bill. Female Convict Scorpion is the best woman in prison movie ever. I know that sounds like faint praise, but it's, it's an extraordinary better movie. Better than the Linda Blair one? Yes, better than the better Linda Blair Better than the... Chain the, Heat, is that what you're talking the about? The Charlotte Rampling one? Yes. Okay. No, no. Female Convict Scorpion, that, the first three movies of that series are extraordinary. Like, legitimately great films. Uh, made sort of uh, as the third movie on a triple bill. Better than the Mika Tan one, although that was only 10 minutes long. Better than any of them. Okay. Because it's better than most 70s movies. Okay, the Mika Tan one had, had a lot of action. Because it fulfills all of the the the, the uh, genre requirements of women in prison movies, the lesbian warden, the, you know, the... The evil men, you know, just the shower, the, everything. Everything is in these movies. And then the director took that as a starting, you know, took that as a, as a point to go from and then made a really dark, surrealistic commentary on the patriarchy in Japan, which you wouldn't think in a movie made for not very much would, would be able to accomplish. The cam work is extraordinary. It has some of the most unique angles I've ever seen in anything. And I really, like, if you can you can get those... Movies on DVD, the first three are really, really good, although mm-hmm. the third one does 
dissolve into let's have attempted rape scenes every five minutes. The first two are better than the third one, but you know, see female comic scorpion and female, I guess is prisoner seven Oh one. The woman who's also lady Snowblood. by the way, I, I don't want to uh, revisit um, our conversation about Kubrick because we will revisit it in a future visit of yours. But I just want to know that obviously Adam and I differ on this and that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. But we're not going to go into that. Uh, let's go into maybe a larger Passionate concept. discussion is not the same thing as an argument. I agree. Absolutely not. An argument is just, well, you came come to the right room. Uh, abuse is down the hall. Are there, and again, this touches on the whole movies that we like made by people that we don't like and vice versa. Well, you've got to separate the man from his art. I mean, that's yeah. not fair. Yeah. Um, oh, well, uh, here's something. I mean, I've always said, it. you know, Polanski may have raped a little girl, but Chinatown's great. Ooh, you know, you know, Chinatown had a lot of blowback at the time because they felt it was just a poor ripoff of the film noirs. I remember reading smarter than that though. Film, yeah, the uh, a lot of the Canadian and French uh, criticism of Chinatown. Sorry to say this, and I'm going to stay away from this. In You've the got future. to read a lot of criticism. You're too young to remember this, but. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, I wasn't born when it came out. Yeah, I remember. A lot of people just jumped all over Chinatown as a bad ripoff of the real of the real crime, Uh, and I understand that. But by the way, I took a girl. um, uh, I I think it's just a jumping off point, the noir element. Yeah, it's it's you know you got to get the water stuff in there, and yeah, I think I know. I was so arch back then that I kind of jumped on the I don't like Chinatown uh, bandwagon because like the Godardists. Didn't like it. But Godard only makes movies about movies. So you I, can't. It's no, not, but I mean, the, the Kai Hei crowd that uh, liked, that, that only feels that the movies based on the movies that Breathless was based on, you know, can be an adequate uh, looking back. But Chinatown's a better movie than Breathless because it doesn't continuously remind you that you're watching a movie, which oh. is all Breathless is. It's look at this, look at this. Don't get me wrong. I think Breathless is an absolutely adolescent exercise and self-indulgence. And John Woo referenced uh, Breathless in the movie we're showing tonight, Bullet in the Head, by continuously, deliberately breaking the mm-hmm. 1-180-degree rule line. So come see it tonight, 7 o'clock, okay. Bullet in the Head. See what we're doing? That's what Breathless was. You know, I really... And and people just didn't have big uh, uh, Buick uh, supercharged specials in France. And they, How did they get that car over there? <laughs> There's only really two or three really good Godard movies. Uh, most of Contempt, not all of it. Yeah, I, yeah, the score is gorgeous. And Weekend, which yeah. is a, a very funny movie for at least an hour. In the last 40 minutes is a, little, a lot of political nonsense, but you can get past that. Because the first hour is that funny. Obviously, from what you said about Kubrick, uh, perhaps emotion does play a larger role in your appreciation of movies than perhaps it does for me. I'm, I may be completely wrong in this. No, I enjoy cold mechanical movies too. Okay. Just I'm not going to pretend that they're something that they're not. Okay. Um, I like dumb action movies just like anyone else, mm-hmm. but I like them to push the boundaries of how dumb they are. But you don't remember Double Dragon, and I think. Well, I do magic. vaguely remember it. I mean, who who knew the director offhand? I don't have an iPhone sitting around here. Yeah. You didn't tell me you were going to say that, and who who's going to know the director offhand? It's all right. It, it's all right. Nobody. Knows <laughs> it just happens to be the movie I got a thousand dollars to be in. Uh, well, I worked on Die Hard with a Vengeance, but I'm not going to pretend. You did? Yes. 
Um, and in fact, if anyone wants to do this at home, it's a very funny experiment. I worked on the scene in which takes place uh, in 72nd Street on the west side of New York, where the, by the subway when they're digging through the garbage, they think there's a bomb, and uh, Jeremy Irons, you know, laughs at them, and then Bruce Willis jumps on the top of the train to get the real bomb. Now during, that's where Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis are like have the phone next to you know they're sharing the receiver. And one of the funniest parts of that scene is something you won't notice the first time you see it, but you will notice, and I noticed obviously while on set, um, the same extras walk through the scene over and over and over from opposite directions. So you'll see one guy who's like, it's like a village people sort of thing. You'll see one guy in like his uh, traffic, you know, traffic cop thing, and he walks to one side. And then if you wait another 10 to 15 seconds, you'll see him walk to the other way. And you'll see a businesswoman, and you'll see the same businesswoman because it's so haphazardly cut together mm. that... Nobody noticed, and it's a very rushed movie, which I guess is useful in terms of what the movie's like, right. but it's so thrown together and so last minute, and it's not a very well shot movie either, that you'll see and really... the ending sucks. I mean... Yeah, you know, the ending he, does suck. He shoots a guy in a helicopter, and it goes The, the original ending is great, if you see that. Um, the one, it's on the DVD. It's really funny. It's, uh, he, uh, Jeremy Irons gets away. Good. And then it, uh, Bruce Willis finds him in Europe. And they have a face-off sitting mano a mano, and it really works. A knife fight at the end, it always comes down to a knife fight. No, it's not a knife fight, but it is a, it is a, a missile with a flak jacket situation while they're sitting at like a European bit, coffee house. Not like at the end of Broken Arrow where it takes Travolta through the side of the car. No, but that's, that's a great way to end a movie. I see. I love that, man. Yeah, I do too. I really, that's a good, that's a good ending. Yes. Because what is yeah. it? It's a penis, my friends. I mean, how Thrusting far, into John Travolta. Of course that's, that's what it is. That's the key. You have to go that far over the top. Yeah. And that's a, that does entertain me. Yeah. But, you know, from uh, an entire building uh, blowing up in Die Hard 1 to a 747, I think, if not a 67, blowing up in the second one. Off of cigarette lighter, I realize that, but that's the good part. That's the part where, you know, from this poor little schmuck of a cop with a fucking cigarette lighter, he gets to blow up a billion-dollar airplane, you know, with the hopes and dreams of a billion-dollar terrorist crime syndicate. I mean, that's the whole Well, they movie. just they shoehorned him into that movie. You realize right. that Die Hard 1's based on one book. Right. Die Hard 2 is okay. based on a totally different book by a totally different author. Okay. And then Die Hard 3 was not originally a Die Hard movie. It was written by Jonathan Hensley as a movie called Simon Says, and then they reworked it for Die Hard 3, which is the same thing they did with Die Hard 4. Oh, okay. They're well, all, you know, they're all other scripts that they just changed around. But to the three being the, gosh, a helicopter and a pistol or whatever. I, no, yeah, that ending is, is it's awful. Just, it's just a, you know. It smacks of sort of a lazy imitation of Shane Black, who did much better work with uh, A Long Kiss Goodnight, which is one of my favorite guilty pleasures, along with my girlfriend, whose birthday it is today. So happy birthday, Heather. Uh, happy birthday. I, I like A Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah, because it goes so far over the top. And it's the only Rennie – you know, I have a friend who has a theory that everyone gets one Rennie Harlan that they like, and mm -hmm. The Long Kiss Goodnight is mine. Some people like Cliffhanger. I don't. No. Some awful. people like Die Hard 2. I don't. Hey, let's take a call. Okay. You're on the air with Adam Lippy and Ed Feldman on G-Town Radio. What do you want? What do I want? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want you. Are you outside, baby? Yes. Do you have a question about movies? No. Um... I haven't thought of one. Maybe I'll think of one. Okay, you want to come in? Mm, no, it's all right. Okay, baby, I'll be out in a minute. We're going to wind this up. We only went an hour over. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> Adam, uh, that's my ride. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're going to take the, the bus? Uh, I have some chores to do around here, but then I'm going to take the bus. Okay. We went a whole hour over. That's because you're so 
goddamn smart, Adam, and we get along good. I think you just like the fact that I remember who directed Double Dragon, actually. <laughs> That might be it. We had bits. We didn't do them. That's okay. We didn't. We only scraped the surface. I kind of know something about movies too. I think. I think. You know. Again, I was a little scared. I said, you know, he's uh, much younger. He's going to be talking about movies that I never heard of. It turns out I'm just as uh, young in heart because I like Scott Pilgrim and he doesn't like it. He's a well. Bad, it's pre-digested. It just old, feels. Old it feels like the movie has made all the decisions for you. So it. You know, it's irony on top of irony on top of irony, and I felt that I could be not in the theater and the movie would be entertaining itself in the sense that, you know, you'll have a scene where the gay roommate, you know, the joke is that they've limited his sexuality to his whole character. And then there's a joke about, well, if you don't think that's funny, how about let's make fun of that cliche? And then it just keeps going. I can't think of anything about Kieran Culkin's performance in that movie Mm -hmm. other than... Every minute he's on screen, I'm just thinking, 15 years ago, this is Robert Downey Jr.'s gig. Without question. Back to school. Yeah, yeah, this is Robert Downey Jr.'s part, right when he, was, he on, was too old. Right when he was on Saturday Night Live, which nobody remembers. Yeah, right. I, I, just, I said, I wish this movie would have taken place 15 years ago because Downey Jr. would have killed in this role. Well, I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with his acting in it. I don't have a problem with any of the acting, but... Um, it's I, in my review. I wrote about the fact that it's a well-made movie that I hate. Okay. And I acknowledge that it's funny. I just don't like any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine made a really good point when he said it's the best movie I've absolutely hated. Okay, Adam. The, this starts cut. Uh, we're going to end here. Uh, this is go, this last question is going to cut close to the bone, my bone. Adam, Does that have to do with the couch and that? No. <laughs> Adam is Scott Pilgrim versus the world modern young people movie uh with all the genres of today that only appeals to old people who think they're young at heart i don't i'm not i'm gonna take off my headphones because i don't yes. want to hear the answers the answer is yes son of a bitch i was afraid of that and that's why it didn't do well at the box office because it's i know it's, it, it 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 falls into sort of the, the way that that nerd being a nerd is cool which mm-hmm. it hasn't been for a long time. But the, the way that nerdiness is cool, the rest of us who, who are real nerds did play Nintendo when we were younger. And now that you're deciding it's cool and hip, even though you used to make fun of us for doing it, uh, the frat boys are now the nerds. And they've just gone into nerddom. And they're just as elitist. They want to beat up people just as much as they did before. But they just jumped on these sorts of genres, these sort of smug type of, uh, of films like Scott Pilgrim, in which... You know, you're constantly aware that you're watching it and, hey, look, there's a reference. Hey, isn't it great that this is being referenced? Hey, look, I mean, the Family Guy notion of, of comedy where the whole point is that it's a I reference to something else. Family Guy. I can understand that. And because it's reliant entirely on references because the movie doesn't – I'm sorry, the TV show doesn't exist if there's no uh, reference to some random 80s thing. You know? Right. And th- but it keeps manatees employed. That was the <laughs> South Park – behind the scenes of the uh, Family Guy uh, writing uh, bullpen. It was actually manatees in, 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 a ter- in an aquarium taking uh, uh, setups and on, written on balls and putting them together with uh, pop culture references, and that's how they write. That sounds about right. I, don't, I didn't see that episode, but I agree. It was the, pro- frankly, I think the last South Park that I watched well, those that, are, those are, I find those episodes to be very clever, mm-hmm. but I never have the urge to watch South Park because it's yeah. it's it's 
they, they don't think through their satire enough because they do those shows in such a in rush. A, in a day, yeah. Yeah, they do in such a rush that they'll, they will try to you know, hit something, but they don't really think of it in a wide scope sort of way. So you have a, you know, a good point that they're making, and they just hammer home at that one point rather than keep, start using that as a starting off point and, and jumping off from there. So some episodes are really great, but you wish they would be a little smarter, like the movie they took their time with. And so – it, it's what, spread South out. Park the movie, yeah, yeah, one of the greatest Hollywood musicals, certainly of the last. Sure, 30 and, and, years. and 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 they spread out um, in the the targets very well. And I thought what didn't work about Team America is that it was totally unfocused and rushed. But I liked it anyway. Uh, I mean, there's the problem because I'm a Fireball uh, uh, XL5. But fan. the problem with that is that the the puppets are so gorgeous looking and yeah. beautiful, and it's, the movie is shot by the guy who shot The Matrix. Mm. So it's an amazing looking movie. And then the continuous joke is that aren't these puppets goofy and awkward and don't they right. have strings? You can't play that game if you're going to have if you're going to make it look like crap. And that's that's how you get away with the. Hey, hey, these puppets are strings. And this is why Adam's going to be a regular guest, and he's going to come back again and again because we have lots more to talk about. Adam Lippi, who tonight will be at Video Library at... 7141 Germantown Avenue. And for only $7, you get to watch... Bullet in the Head in a uh, composite cut never seen before uh, with new subtitles that I've rewritten myself. And to eat free... Popcorn, and you can buy ice cream, and you can bring in any food you like. Uh, there are trivia games and prizes. You will end up with uh, at least $20 worth of stuff if you show up. And if you go to and his And you get a free web- essay as well that I've written. And if you go to his website entitled... Regrettablesincerity.com. You will find the entire summer schedule for his film series, correct? At least May and June. Uh, July is going to go pretty soon. Okay, every Thursday night. You got any other gigs? Tomorrow I'm going to see the new Terrence Malick movie, but, you know. You're I can, kidding. I can tell you how, how it is. How many decades did it take him to do this one? Well, the last one was The New World, which is, I guess, 05. But this has been around, like, shooting for a long time. This is, like, I guess was supposed to be at Cannes last year. Now it made a Cannes this year. I can watch Badlands any time. I can, too, because anytime. because the, 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 the voiceover, which seems so pretentious and ridiculous in all of his other movies, plays like a joke in Badlands. Mm. And he didn't have to deal with that thing that he did in Days of Heaven, which is gorgeous to look at, but pointless as a story because he had to add the voiceover because he cut out all of the story points. Well, the anything, only way to tie it together was adding this childish voiceover. Anything with Richard Gere in it is pointless, Adam. <laughs> okay, we've got except to Unfaithful, go. which is a very entertaining piece of trash. <laughs> oh God, that guy! <laughs> uh, what tree was Richard Gere made out of? Is our trivia question. Um, and so Adam Lippy will be our guest again and again until we run out of things to say, which might be never. This has been Morning Feed. My ride is here. Tomorrow, Jim Dragoni uh, with live music and perhaps a theme uh, show concerning, well, Rapture, of course, because the world ends on Saturday. Maybe we'll have Blondie in. This is Ed Feldman. This is G-Town Radio. We are the sound from Germantown. Community Radio Alamundo. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. I like this song. <laughs>